The Koi Gig Pod. I wouldn't care if Megan Campbell didn't have hamstrings left. If she just stood on the sideline, she has to play. And subscribe to the feed in the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mo. Yeah, you're very welcome along. It's Tuesday morning. It's Sharon Shane with you all the way through until ten. Shane, how are you? Morning, Joe. How are things? What's going on? Very little. In fact, very, a lot. There's a lot happening, as it turns out. It turns out there is a lot, isn't it? Yeah. Yesterday was one of those days where every 15 minutes there was news of, you know, difference. And some people think it's big news, some people not. Um, big Manchester United day yesterday, obviously. Yeah, yeah, big day. Carrick, um, Carrick is the next Manchester United manager now. That's how this works. <laughs> is that the yeah? The, that's the the Gerard to Liverpool succession plan as well. Is that how it works? When um, Carrick uh, relegates Middlesbrough to the to the to League One, um, yeah, it's all these lofty ambitions. Carrick's already managed United, and he did well for his, what three, four games. So uh, maybe he just wants to leave it at that. His record is astonishing, wasn't it? Did he win every game? I think he did. Right, I well, think there you he did. Go. I mean, um, an incredible record, and won by more than one goal as well in the game. So it was yeah, impressive. Um, Carrick is loved though, right? Oh, he is. Yeah, yeah. He's one of those. You players. do genuinely want him at some point to have such a good career that he's in the mix for that. Yeah, yeah. When you, when you like, you all, you always want your ex players, especially players who, who were who gave as much to the club as Carrick to, to kind of come back and come full circle and manage the team. But like, and he's one of those players who even in recent weeks has been spotted in the the away end at matches as a as a fan with the with the Pete cap on, trying to be incognito. But um, shut up at the golf here, of course, just because yeah. you like to watch famous golfers. <laughs> exactly. So no, he's one of those um, died in the wall United fans now, albeit with a, with a Geordie accent and a, and a history with with the likes of Spurs as well. So yeah, a great man, Michael Carrick. There you go. We needed to get the Man United stuff out of the way first. Obviously, the Rocket Gibraltar dying was the most important thing that happened yesterday in terms of Manchester United's history. <laughs> um, you know, because that that. That was the retirement plan for Alex Ferguson until it wasn't. It was. Yeah. It was. I, I'm not. I don't get the stuff money. It's no. got. Yeah, it's got me. You're joking, right? And then, I do think now, in retrospect, would everybody, if they knew what they knew now, had just made the deal, let them have a bit of the horse, they keep the club, buy the full club outright, yeah, and they become like because the value of Manchester United has massively gone up since the Glazers yeah. took control. And um, maybe, the, you know, as a trio, they could have taken control of Manchester United and he could have had a little leg of the horse and the value of Manchester United would have been several billion as opposed mm. to the, whatever it, it ended up the horse was worth, which wasn't <clears throat> as big as everybody thought it was. And um, and they would have been successful. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm you know I'm a, a space geek, chair, and I, I like to think there isn't there is an alternate dimension out there because there's an infinite universe. I think there is a dimension out there where that has happened, and where it, it did end happily ever after, and Rock of Gibraltar, and and everything just was smoothed over. Um, I'd love to see how that panned out in that universe, wherever that universe is out there. And JP McManus owned Manchester United. Yeah. And, and that's it would be interesting to see what happened yeah, but the lads still made what JP and, and Magnar still made 70 million in profit when they, when they were selling it um, I'd forgotten like Alex Ferguson talked it could about, have been billions though. could have been yeah, yeah, yeah 70 million is a small change probably for them lads but like I remember reading Alex Ferguson's regrets in different books and he talks about footballing regrets in terms of you know not playing Berbatov or Parchi Song yeah. in big matches but not having the progeny of Rocket Gibraltar has to be... Yeah, now, now it turned out Rocket Gibraltar's progeny weren't as good as everyone no. thought they were going to be on the basis of how good a horse it was. So um, he didn't lose as much as he thought he was going to lose. Yeah. That made him take a court case against the two billionaires who then published a list of 99 very awkward questions for Alex Ferguson that never got answered. Like, people do forget just how, you know, uh, public the washing of the dirty laundry 
was it was very public yeah after the fight they built up their uh, stake that's what it says in the paper oh, that, my recollection was that they were already building up the um, the shareholding anyway and uh, that arming themselves a, yeah that it, no, well, like because for, you know, on the off chance that this might work out and it, it looked like it was a good investment so yeah. but the 99 questions for the board and uh, if you go back and look at those questions, it's like oh, questions did, about did Ronaldo they, and Stam. And do they have to bring that up? Like, yeah. Oh, <laughs> and then so. there was the AGM moment as well when someone stood up and was like, "Alex, do you feel like you should resign?" And I think Ferguson's on the record of saying that was a pretty embarrassing night for him um, because he knows that it was awkward. You know, when you're at wars with with two of the clubs about a horse, like yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I know. I'm not saying that uh, it's a no-fault divorce here. Like, wh- why didn't they tell him up front, this is just a prize money, by the way, you're not getting any of the thing? <laughs> or why didn't they just give him the thing? Like, But it, uh, it's, what strikes me as remarkable about the whole thing is that that, that deal is... Uh, there's so much at stake financially in that deal that it's a verbal thing almost. Like, well, I don't know if there was a written... But it appeared to be at the back and forth, and that's why the legal battle ensued. But there was no concrete... This no, is no what we've contract. agreed. Yeah. It, it was madness. Yeah. Right, the uh, big news, of course, is that Shamrock Rovers are the league champions for the third time in a row. It is a remarkable achievement from, um, you know, the Stephen Bradley uh, era where there was definitely a period of time at the start where people were like, oh, he's not going to make it, this isn't going to work. And in fairness to Shamrock Rovers and everybody involved with making the decisions, they were like, he's a young manager, we knew he's a young manager, there's going to be some teething pains and there's going to be some growing pains. And... Um, I, I like it's always a little bit unfortunate when you don't win the league on the pitch, mm, especially yourself. when they're about to play Derry at the weekend. Yeah, and t- kind of, yeah, it takes away from it for the for the fans a little bit. But I mean, I don't think they'll care at this stage how they how they secure the three in a row. Derry get to give them the the roll of honour onto the pitch and the, clap them onto it. As I'm sure they'll they'll thoroughly enjoy doing that. Um, yeah, Stephen Bradley, like 37 years of age, and that's completing nearly six full seasons in charge now which just highlights how young he is uh, and and if Stephen Kenny was to depart the Irish job tomorrow he would be one of the main names no, in contention do you think so? not yet no, no. Well, when, what does he need to do? well he's 37 he needs to have a bit of life experience about him he'd, he'd be picking players older than him for Ireland look I, I, <laughs> yeah. he, what, and so uh, ultimately I don't want to be talking Stephen Bradley down I think his, his career is on a trajectory that is very strong and very good but um you know the team has to now use this as a springboard for more success in Europe and it'd be interesting to see uh, with nothing left to play for how the game against Ghent goes yeah well now that at least they have the opportunity to, to go for go hell for leather in that game because I mean 500 grand for a win and what is it 100 and something grand for a draw um, and now that they have the league sewn up they can concentrate on doing that getting a result uh, like and what's surprising about what's most impressive probably about Rovers winning this year is that like Graham Burke and is it Gaffney I had it written down here Gaffney Rory Gaffney who by the way Burke or, um, Bradley said the other day after the match that he's the best player in the league but they've scored nine league goals each so to win a league you know ordinarily you think right to win, to win a league title you have to have a 20 goal striker He's only he's got two nine goal strikers. Neither of them have broken the double figures, which is quite remarkable for a team about to do what they're going to do. Um, unbeaten in twenty seven league games, uh, forty seven points from fifty one at home. Like the the dominance is, it, you can argue that it's good or bad for the for the league. But I mean, for Rovers fans right now, it puts them on a pedestal with the other teams that have achieved three in a row. And I know Waterford back in the the uh, sixty at seventy Dundalk, the great Dundalk team. But it's the Rovers team of the eighties that won the four in a row. Because you try and think each year, well, what's the motivation? How do they 
want to come back and do it again that Rovers team that did four in a row in the 80s is undoubtedly going to be top of Bradley's um, notice board for next season so. yeah I think as well the fact that they're such a uh, strong panel um, they can drop players players are never quite sure if they're going to get picked and that's I would say one of the m- most compelling motivations for the individuals to continue to perform yeah. and that that's the type of thing that drives um, repeated success you, you know you saw it with the dubs anybody slightly off it they get dropped yeah um, and, but you need you need a you need a wealth of experience as well. Like you look at the team, even the other day, I think there was six players over the age of thirty one, um, and and the likes of Pico Lopez and and Ronan Finn and Alan Manis have been kind of part of that team throughout. Like he's built his base of the team around those. Of course, he has the young players coming in and, and out as well. But to to become a, a dominant team that wins three in a row like this, you have to have those culture players that are there from the start, wealth of experience and. I was thoroughly impressed with what Stephen Bradley has done because he kind of wound people up the wrong way a little bit at the start when he was kind of some of his tetchy post-match interviews and that sort of thing a little bit like Duffer but you come to enjoy it and uh, and want to hear his post-match interviews because of it and, and look he stands up for himself stands up for his team and uh, it's a big achievement but yeah I would have preferred to have seen and I think Rovers fans would have preferred to have seen it happen at the weekend Yeah I, th- I think for the league we also need Derry to be stronger next season and yeah. we need everybody else to make a, a bit of a leap forward so that it's more in out like we've known Shamrock Rovers are going to be the league champions you would say for a number of months at this point mm. there was a little bit where they would drop some points here and there and the gap would close a little bit but it was never quite Derry weren't quite going on a mad run where they were winning every game yeah. <clears throat> and it was clear that the pressure was, was mounting to a point where it was becoming squeaky bum time there yeah. was no squeaky bum and for the uh, neutrals out there you need a little bit of squeaky bum you do need a little bit of squeaky bum and, and, and like I'd also like to see them push on in the, in, in, in the Europa League at some point and kind of do it and dock on it where you pick up a few pick up some points but the dock of seven points after three or four games I can't remember in one of those Europa League seasons open to correction on that but I mean Rovers would love to pick up points in Europe I didn't like the fact that they kind of picked a a weaker team in some of the early games but I understa- understood it and now it's kind of paid dividends well, they, the they would argue the ends justifies the means and what they're, yeah. what they're here for the whole point of what they're trying to do is to win this league so the, um, the, the other thing as well to mention on, on Stephen Bradley like, and, and it kind of wasn't known this year to a large degree apart from within the club but his son I know his son Josh was going through a serious illness through most of this season the middle of the season so he's he's had to be dealing with a lot at home when he's also trying to deal with, with trying to win a to win a league and push on in the Europa League as well so from that perspective ultra impressive if there's um, fans of uh, Premier League teams out there I'm interested in what would convert you into somebody who is going to games on a semi-regular basis once a month twice a season what would drag you to a League of Ireland game because like, yeah. Tal is going to be completely refurbished um, <clears throat> with uh, sorry obviously it will, the refurbishment will be complete the fourth it's, is it refurbished if it's newly furbed I don't know <laughs> the build will be complete yeah uh, a football stadium with four sides equal as, as Nathan points out my, uh, my thing is you see of course I was a, I was a big Monarch United fan as, as a kid and, and go to Keegan was like my, my home on Friday nights and, and I'd go to watch matches whether in the Premier Division for, for a period or the First Division I haven't had really a team people have said to me oh, would you not go and watch Dundalk but uh, and that they are the closest team in geographical proximity but I, like Dundalk were Monaghan United's closest rivals so it would be a bit strange to go and start supporting them now that I'm moving back to, to Dublin in, in the next week or two Jer, you're going to adopt a team I'm going to have to adopt a team I'm going to be living in like the Smithfield kind of Stony Batter area so I, I suppose you have to pick you have to pick based on geography but I can pick anyone can't I? Is uh, any, you, should, you have to pick Dover right? I suppose yeah 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 yeah. Is that's the 
Yeah, but it'll be the biggest bandwagon support of all time. But here, if you want to um, to put any calls out for for who I should support in the comments, please let me know because I'm open. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning with Gillette in association with Movember Effortless Shave Magnificent Mo. You can sign up or donate now at Movember.com. For some uh, reaction, here's what's coming up. Frank Rainey at 7.55, an update on the Regency murder trial. Jonathan Wilson at 10 past 8, talking about Pep and also Unai Emery. Sports pages this morning, plenty in them. Uh, we'll bring in Matt Williams, the best 15 he coached against at 8.50. And then some Pat Nevin goodness around about half past 9 this morning. Now Shane Keegan is with us to try and reflect a little bit on the achievement of Shamrock Rovers. Shane, how great an achievement is it when you have the best team and the, the best facilities and the best squad at the same time you still have to get the job done so um, there's definitely like uh, a mealy-mouthedness from non-Rovers fans about their mm-hmm. achievement but three in a row you can't sniff at that No, no, you certainly can't look, it is it's, it's absolutely it's, it's fantastic achievement as you say and <laughs> I suppose to be honest with you, some of the points that you were after after highlighting there as as reasons why it should be easier for them to win, I would say that in itself is the biggest challenge that he has. Like by league, by League of Ireland standards, lads, the quality of player he has in the dressing room is is incredible. Arguably the strongest squad that we've well certainly you know since I've been kind of knocking around League of Ireland, I would argue it's possibly the strongest squad that a, a, any manager has had. But that raises incredible challenges. Um, and you next to never hear of any dressing room dis, you know, disruption or unrest. Now, it might be there, and I'm sure fellas aren't happy at times, but it never never leaks out or never seeps out. Or, you know, it's very, very rare that you see any form of dissent from a player who hasn't started for them or who got brought off after an hour or anything like that. I mean, you know, start from the back there. He's got... You know, he's got probably near enough the four best centre-halves in the League of Ireland. You know, one of those fellas every week can't play. The same applies to midfield. The embarrassment of riches up front is incredible. His ability to man-manage all of those personalities and the egos that will come with those personality personalities, to me, that's the most impressive part of, of, of the job that he's done. I think that goes a little bit under the radar. I don't think he gets enough credit for that. I, I, his man-management skills have to be top-class, lads. They really do, you know. Shane Hannum was pointing out as well that he's like um, there six seasons and he's still a very young man. So like we're we're not witnessing the end of his evolution as a coach at all. He's actually getting better as time goes on. He is, he is, and I suppose the holy grail for him now. You know, it's just a bit of a pity that they decided to handle Europe in the manner that they have this time around. Um, because I would love to see him operate in Europe with a with a full deck um, where they make it the priority and we see himself test himself against some of, of, of Europe's top managers. You know, unfortunately, I can understand the reasons why they prioritise the league and, and why they made so many changes in Europe. But I would love to see Stephen Bradley go toe-to-toe with some of the top managers in Europe. With, you know, because I think he's, you know, tactically he's he's next to never found wanting any question marks that were there were there in the early days and I understand why he had the headaches that he had early on he was trying to figure out a way to accommodate the likes of Jack Byrne and Graham Burke in the same side and, and that kind of thing and you know by I don't know whether it's by accident or by design that he, he came across this this three four two one formation that essentially they have now stuck with for three and a half four seasons it's 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 worked a dream from day one for him, and they have it perfected. They have it absolutely perfected. Everybody within that side knows their role. Again, yeah, they have to tweak it in a little bit when they go into Europe. But League of Ireland wise, 
you know, and this is the thing with them, I suppose, lads, is, you know, sometimes they're coming up against the team and they might have a bit of flexibility and you're you're wondering, will they go? Like Derry, for example, this year, Derry regularly bounced between a back four and a back five. Shamrock Rovers, you always know what way they're going to play. You know the shape, you know the formation, you know the style of play, you know all of that. You can do all the homework that you want and all the work you can on the training ground to try and prepare for that. And yet, very, very, very few teams, even in knowing any of that, are able to, to combat it when it comes to the 90 minutes on, on the pitch on match night. I think I remember even there was a game, uh, probably to like mid to late, late August, when they beat Dundalk 3 0 at home, Shane. And there was like that was a perfect example, like their style of play and attacking from the back and attacking quickly as well. Uh, like what we mentioned there a moment ago, that the fact that I think it's Rory Gaffney and Graham Burke have, have nine league goals each, and, and like to secure a, a league title with none of your strikers having broke double figures, never mind breaking 20 goals for a season uh, is quite something but it's testament to, to to the style of play that they haven't needed that that uh, striker with, with, with loads of goals to secure the title Yeah you could argue that they're, they're a system based team and they, again this is hugely to his credit that with all the star names and all the star profiles he has in his team they're still a system based team they're not based on individual moments it's it's everybody within that team as I say has their role and I mean the shining example there is Rory Gaffney as you said like where else would you see it that a centre forward in a star laden team and a team that you know has you know won a league title pretty comfortably you know anywhere else in Europe that guy is expected to score you know 20, somewhere between 20-25 goals Rory Gaffney has scored 9 and I will be shocked if he doesn't win League of Ireland player of the year <laughs> Because he's been outstanding at doing everything the centre-forward role requires at Shamrock Rovers. And because there are so many other quality players, they're not looking for a Haaland who just gets on the end of things and pokes at home. They're looking for somebody who brings the most out of the two guys that are playing in the 10 behind them, brings the most out of the, the incredible attack and wing-back options that they have. Um, and Rory Gaffney has done that all year. And as I say, look, Jack, you know, we probably see a little bit of a difference in how they play as opposed to when Jack Byrne is on the field, but not off, but not on the field. Any other role, any player missing within the Shamrock Rovers team, and it's just, okay, well, we bring in somebody else and he knows what the job spec of that role is and the band and, and, and the team just plays on and plays to the usual high standard no matter who you are. As I say, a little bit of a caveat for Jack maybe, but again, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's fantastic what they're doing and, you know, it's too easy to say that, of course, they are should they have more money than anybody else. They didn't have, a, they didn't have more money than everybody else when he started, when he came into the role, lads, and they didn't have more money than everybody else when he won his first league title. Um, or certainly didn't have, you know, I would I would argue they certainly didn't have the biggest budget uh, the year he won his first league title. It's the same as, it, it's a very similar argument to Stephen Kenny. You know, by the end of Stephen Kenny's reign at Dundalk, he had all the best players and he had the most money. And people are saying, oh, well, sure, it's easy for him to win it. But he didn't when he won the first one or two. He built up his own armory there of players and you know they have more money because they kept winning titles yes Dermot Desmond came along and that certainly helps things as well but my point is you know he won a league title when he didn't have the biggest budget okay he's winning them now when he does but he had done it previously without it too at that point about <clears throat> playing uh, the best team in Europe it, it actually in a weird way the success hopefully of, of Derry and anybody else who might come along next year might make it less likely that he's able to do that unless the squad gets bigger so what's the future there in, in that aspect like a more competitive league will probably mean that it's less likely that they do try and go after points in the European whichever league they're in 
Yeah, and, and and that's a killer. And as I say, I don't know what the, the solution is. Uh, like I think we're we're probably a long, long way away from uh, us having a, a coefficient at the league where the top two manage to qualify for for Europa League, and like that's essentially probably what we need now because we are going to have two superpowers in the league for the foreseeable future, and. I don't know how that works. I don't know how that works. This this is the issue. You look around Europe at the the likes of your your sheriffs and and these various different leagues that have one dominant team. They have one dominant team because that team is going to win. The, essentially, is able to win the league with their B team almost, and therefore can play their A team in Europe. Um, but because Derry are so strong and are going to continue to be so strong, Rovers, you know, Rovers will have to continue to be at their very, very best in the league to, to stay winning it. And you know, one season you might survive. I would say for Derry Shamrock Rovers with their current budgets, you might survive one season without being back in in Europa League. But like two would cause would cause serious serious question marks and maybe a rethink about how they they structure the club so they've absolutely got to prioritize the league first which as I say, is is really really disappointing because you know the quality of player the quality of manager you're licking your lips at the thought of them having a, a real real rattle at, at at Europe when did that period I was chatting to the lads before that period where where I was in a role at Dundalk lads we we had the exact opposite situation going on now <laughs> That, the Dundalk experience probably is one of the reasons why Shamrock Rovers have decided to go the route they have because Dundalk, we did prioritise Europe, we gave Europe a right good rattle, got you know got quite far in it and picked up a lot of money from, from that and all that but in the process, failed to qualify again for the Europa League for the following year and kind of everything unravelled and they're only kind of fixing that now, you know. Yeah, I suppose um, Shane, uh, Stephen himself and Rovers fans might not thank me for, for this question especially the morning after they've secured another league title but, uh, and look, maybe I'm being a bit premature linking him to, a, to a, an Irish job at this stage given he is only 37 but like we've seen him linked with, with clubs like MK Dons and, and like Lincoln City across the last couple of years Like, is he getting to a point now where the calibre of club he's going to get uh, linked with is going to be slightly, slightly increased and, and higher than the MK Dons or, or Lincoln Cities of the world? Yeah, I think so. I think so, and and I do think it is very important to go back to that decision. That was that was a huge, huge decision in the short term future of of, of Shamrock Rovers, Shane. It really, really was because you know you look and you think, well, what could go wrong for Shamrock Rovers? But Stephen Bradley leaving and going across the water is definitely top of the list of things that they would look to avoid because. Inevitably, he seems to have very, very strong relationships with some of his really real key men. I think if Stephen went across, I think you would potentially see two or three of their very best players following him. So it's a real lose-lose situation if he did go across. And those offers possibly, well, almost certainly will come again. I think they, they certainly will because he's... You know he's operating at such a high level now that he has to be catching eyes, and as you say, eyes possibly probably even higher up the the food chain than the ones he already caught. Um, look, we're all aware, and it, it it deserves mention as well that Stephen has done it certainly over the second half of this season um, with the backdrop of the the family health issues that he's got going on at, at home with his own son. And I know everybody in the League of Ireland would you know one be wishing them the very best look on that front, but two, you'd look on in amazement that he's managed to maintain the focus that's required to do the job he's done 
I'd be a young fella here at home. You know, I, I, I dread to think if, if he found himself in a similar situation to Stephen's young fella, would you know, would you be able to, to, to stay focused and stay delivering the goods in the manner Stephen has done? That that is, you know, incredible that he's done that. And I think, you know, that situation will, you know, inevitably have an effect on what Stephen does over the next few years. I think he will be very, very conscious to balance his family's needs with his own footballing needs. And, you know, I think that will see him stay put and stay in a role that's closer to home and a role that he knows exactly where he stands. So I, I, I would be very surprised to see him leaving Rovers over the next year to two years, to be honest with you. But beyond that... Um, yeah, look, the sky's the limit for him. He's a fantastic manager, as you say. He's still incredibly young for a fellow who's achieved all that he's achieved, you know. Shane Keegan, good stuff. We'll leave it there. Thanks a million. Cheers, lads. It's uh, 7.55 this morning. That's Shane Keegan giving us some uh, analysis and reaction to the news that off the field, Shamrock Rovers managed to win the league last night because uh, Derry and Sligo drew nil all. They'll obviously play again at the weekend. And um, as we talked about, big money is the reward for Derry for winning um, or trying to win the game against Ghent. Now, OTBAM brought to you with Gillette in association with Movember, Effortless Shaves, Magnificent Mo. You can sign up or donate now at movember.com. A reminder, Braeburn Coffee is the official coffee partner at OTB. Each week we give one lucky viewer a hundred euro voucher to spend on some Braeburn coffee goodness at an Apple Green store near you. Tanter, check out at Off The Ball on Twitter. Like and retweet our Braeburn competition post and you will be in the draw. Braeburn Coffee never compromises on quality or taste to give you the best on-the-go coffee experience on the road. It's available at Apple Green today. We're joined on the line by News Talks Quartz correspondent Frank Graney to give us the very latest on the Regency Hotel murder trial. Frank, good morning. How are you doing? Good, lads. Um, this trial is obviously dominating the front pages day in, day out. I think it's about a week since we, we spoke to you last. Um, what's been going on in the meantime? Well, we've had lots of evidence, as you would imagine, since we last spoke, Jer. Um, we've heard from civilian witnesses, some people who were at the boxing weigh-in when the shooting started when and when David Byrne ultimately lost his life. We've heard from a lot of uh, Garda witnesses. We've heard post-mortem evidence. You know, we heard the, the cause of death from the, de- the then deputy state pathologist. We've l- watched an awful lot of CCTV evidence and we've heard some evidence, too, in relation to the seizure of three AK-47 assault rifles believed to be used uh, in the Regency shooting. I suppose immediately after you and I last spoke, Chair, um, a number of civilian witnesses were called. We heard from two press photographers who were at the event Now, neither of them were covering the actual boxing event, and this was a boxing weigh-in ahead of an event at the National Boxing Stadium that was due to happen the following day. Obviously, that was cancelled after what transpired at the boxing weigh-in at the Regency Hotel on the 5th of February 2016. But we heard from Colin O'Reardon. Now, he was the chief photographer with the independent newspapers back in February of 2016, and both he and crime reporter Robin Schiller were dispatched to the boxing weigh-in on the off off chance that some people that were of interest to the newspaper uh, might be at that event. Now, he was told um, not to bring any camera equipment. So whatever photographs he was planning to take at the event were going to be taken on his smartphone. He said that he arrived there first. Um, Robin Schiller arrived a short time later. They went into the event. This was happening at two o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, they went in and uh, Robin Schiller said that he had spotted Daniel Kinahan. Uh, Daniel Kinahan, as we all know, um, was one of the owners of MGM. MGM was one of the promoters of this event, the Clash of the Clans. He and Matthew Macklin, the 
boxer Matthew Macklin set up MGM in Marbella in Spain. Robin Schiller spotted Daniel Kinnan in that event. He brought that to Colin's attention. And after the two men were satisfied that they had, I suppose, satisfied their brief, uh, they decided to leave. And just outside the Regency Hotel then, as they were leaving, they heard a loud noise. Uh, Robin turned to Colin and said that it sounded like a gunshot. And Colin O'Reardon gave evidence then last week of seeing two armed Gardaí, or for all intents and purposes, they looked like armed Gardaí running up the steps into the Regency Hotel. And he said he noticed that they were carrying AK-47s and he thought that was unusual because he didn't think Gardaí carried AK-47s. He said there was another man uh, armed with an assault rifle and tactical gear that was um, following them a little bit uh, behind them, but he was following them inside the hotel. And he said that uh, he didn't want to bring this person's attention to him. He was standing at the end of of the steps. Um, So he stayed there and he tried to look inconspicuous. Uh, But ultimately, he watched three armed men walking into the region or running into the Regency Hotel armed with assault rifles. He said he heard shots being fired. And from where he was standing just outside the hotel, he could see into the reception area. He could see a man on top of the reception desk with a gun. He said he was pointing this gun at somebody who was behind the reception desk. He said he didn't fire. He jumped down, back down off that uh, desk. He heard more more um, gunshots and he described then you know minutes later the three men leaving the hotel and he said that he was in fear for his life at this point so he just put up his hands and he said guards I don't know where to be and he watched as they got into a, a van that left the scene soon afterwards we also heard from another press photographer this is a man called Ernie Leslie uh, he was a freelance photographer back in 2016. He was dispatched to the boxing weigh-in, just like Colin O'Reardon and Robin were with another reporter, Alan Sherry. This was um, on behalf of the Sunday World. And he described approaching the hotel. He said he was outside. He heard a commotion. He heard noises. And he saw people running from the hotel. And he did think that the noises sounded like gunshots. But this was two o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday. And he thought, surely not. But he did become concerned when he saw people rushing out of the hotel and he said that his attention was drawn to a silver van that was parked outside the hotel he said the driver's window was open as as he and alan approached and he said that he noticed a hand coming out the window and the barrel of a weapon um he said instinctively he grabbed his camera and he noticed somebody running towards them as he did so and again instincts kicked in and he took a number of photographs seven or eight frames this photograph we now know is the photograph that appeared on the front front page of the Sunday World of a man in a flat cap and a man with a wig dressed as a woman running from the scene. Both were armed with handguns. Um, we also heard from James McGettigan. James McGettigan's family owns the Regency Hotel. He was working that day and he described um, at about half past two being in the bar area. He heard a commotion. He said that three Again, for all intents and purposes, three men who looked like armed Gardaí came into the bar area, told everyone to get on the ground. Uh, he said that he assumed that there you know, had been an incident locally, that he came out of the bar. He went over to one of these men. He said that this person was completely covered up. He could make out his eyes, but nothing else. He was holding a, a gun. That gun was being held uh, towards him. And he expected him to identify himself as a guard then to explain what was going on. But he didn't. He said that they were looking for the boxers. They were screaming, looking for the boxers. Where are the boxers? And he said they stayed in the bar for maybe less than a minute and they left. He heard more gunshots and he said he became concerned. And he said, maybe looking back a little bit naively, he said he, he, he ran into another room uh, to raise the alarm. And he was actually the one that, 
that rang the Gardaí. So they were supposed civilian witnesses that we heard from immediately after we last spoke, Jer. It's, it's really shocking when you paint the picture of exactly what was going on and just um, uh, how different people react under extreme terror, really. Uh, you know, the instinct of the photographer to take photographs, that's so ingrained. Um, but also that kind of sense that you see Gardaí and you actually feel safe. You think, okay, this is going to be fine here. I'm I'm in the company of somebody who knows what they're doing. And um, that, that evidence really brings home just how many people were caught up in this. Yeah, and, and I think the prosecuting barrister, Sean Galland, touched, touched on that exact point, Jerry, in his opening address. You know, shots had been fired in the hotel. There were about two or 250 people there. As you can imagine, you know, panic struck. Um, people were fleeing for their lives. They were looking for exits. And then they spotted Gardaí coming in, and um, that just caused even more confusion, particularly when they also started firing shots. Um, you know, we heard and we saw CCTV evidence um, last week. And at various points since we've spoken, we've been shown, you know, from different points of view of the prosecution's case that it's trying to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. You get the feeling that CCTV is going to feature heavily. You know, there were lots of cameras both inside and outside the Regency Hotel that captured what happened uh, on that day. We saw two of the gunmen, again, the man with the wig dressed as a woman and also the man with the flat cap who we now know is a man called Kevin Murray uh, a dissident Republican who was one of the, the gunmen on that day he has since passed away we were shown CCTV footage of them entering the hotel through a laundry room entrance we were shown the footage of the three men dressed as armed guardy entering the hotel you know at 2.32 we were shown footage of David Byrne running you know, in the middle of a crowd, uh, clearly identifiable in the footage that we were shown, running from the Regency suite where the boxing weigh-in had been taking place, running towards the reception area. He stops, he comes back in shot, seemed to be running back towards the suite from which he had come from, and then turns on his heels again and goes back to the reception area. And we know that that's where he was shot six times by two of the tactical men. There was also a very distressing um, image shown just shortly after that, of David Byrne's feet just out of shot, clearly lying on the ground. Uh, this was after he had been shot. We heard Tactical One, or the armed raider that was described in court as Tactical One, shot him. He hit the ground. Tactical Two shot him. Tactical Two went back and coldly and, and calmly shot him in, in the head and body. In the post-mortem evidence, the then deputy state pathologist, Dr. Michael Curtis, gave evidence of, of going to the scene that evening. There was a forensics tent in the reception area. Inside it lay the body of, of David Byrne. He was lying up against the, the desk. His head was lying in a pool of blood. And Dr. Curtis said from that preliminary examination, it was very obvious that he had suffered catastrophic um, gunshot wounds to the head. He gave, and I won't go into them in any detail because they are quite graphic and distressing, but he gave some very detailed evidence about the post-mortem he carried out the following day. And ultimately, his conclusions were that David Byrne had died from six gunshots to the head and body, you know, fired from a high velocity weapon. And he said that if death was an instant, it would have been rapid. Um, you know, turning back to that CCTV evidence, we see the armed raiders leaving the hotel. We see a van leaving the vicinity of the hotel. We see six men running up a nearby laneway that runs alongside St. Vincent's GAA Club. And it is the prosecution's case that at the top of that lane were the getaway vehicles. The van was found burnt out at Charlemont Estate a short time later. 
We were also shown CCTV footage from the day before, Jer, and uh, this was um, this showed Patrick Dowdall, the father of a former Sinn Féin councillor, Jonathan Dowdall. Both of them men um, have been sentenced to. You know, Jonathan Dowdell got four years in prison. His father, Patrick, got two years for facilitating what happened at the Regency Hotel that day by making a hotel room available to the criminal organisation behind the attack. We see CCTV footage of Patrick Dowdall arriving at the scene at about half past seven in the evening. The evening before, he seems to check in. He hands over some cash to the receptionist. He's handed key cards. He goes to the second floor to room 2104. Um, he stays there for about 10 minutes. He then leaves the hotel. One hour later, then, we were shown footage of a taxi pulling up. A man getting out of that taxi doesn't go to reception area, goes straight up to the second floor, again to room 2104. That man we now know was Kevin Murray. Um, Kevin Murray came out of the room at about 10 o'clock. He had gone into it with a bag. He came out of it without the bag. He is seen leaving the room the following morning again with the bag and leaves the hotel at that point. Um, a PSNI officer gave evidence and he identified Kevin Murray as being the person in that photograph that was taken by Ernie Leslie. We were also shown CCTV footage of the movement of various vehicles uh, around the city in the lead up to the shooting. And, and this is the case, I suppose, against the other two men that we haven't spoken about who were sitting in the dock alongside Jerry the Monk Hutch. Two Dublin men, Paul Murphy and Jason Bonney, both in their 50s. Now, they're not accused of murder. They're facing and have denied a less serious charge, that of facilitating the murder by, I suppose, um, contributing in, in the sense that they are accused of offering logistical support through the provision of certain vehicles. Um, there are identification issues. The prosecution will have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that they are the persons seen in various clips that have been shown to the judges over the past few days. We've also heard evidence, Chair, of, of the seizure of three AK-47s from the boot of a car. Now, this was on the 9th of March 2016, so one month or, to be exact, 33 days after the shooting. Um, a guard, the team, intervention team, was dispatched to a location just outside Slane, County Meath, on that day. They stopped a Donegal Reg car. It was being driven by a Donegal man called Shane Rowan. He is an IRA man. He subsequently pleaded guilty to firearms offences and IRA membership. He has been jailed for seven and a half years. They opened up the boot and hidden inside the boot, they found three, K, three AK-47s. They also found loaded um, magazines. Uh, these were taken away for analysis. The car was analysed. That burnt out van, the suspected getaway vehicle, was also analysed. And yesterday, we heard from a ballistics expert, a Detective Sergeant David O'Leary, who was physically handed one by one three AK-47s. Now, he analysed those weapons. And before he gave his evidence yesterday, he checked to make sure that they were safe. He assured the court and the judges that they were. And he gave evidence of inspecting those weapons. We heard that they were Kalashnikov variant uh, rifles. Uh, they came from Romania, China and the former Yugoslavia. He said the bullets that were found at the Regency Hotel, the spent cartridges after the bullets were fired. He said he examined those. And after examining both the weapons and those discharged cartridges, he formed the opinion that the bullets that were fired at the Regency Hotel, the bullets, the six bullets that took David Byrne's life, were fired from the three weapons that were found in the boot of that car that was stopped just outside Slane one month later. Uh, strike marks noticed or noted yesterday as well in that ballistics uh, discussion as well, Frank? That's right, Shane. There was a, a lot of detailed evidence from Detective Garda O'Leary. He did go and um, examine the scene after the shooting as well and he 
noticed and referenced a number of strike marks. And he said that this strike mark and one strike mark in particular was found just to the right of the stage where the weigh in was taking place that day back in February 2016. And he gave very detailed evidence of of where and how they found uh, various cartridges, um, you know, that were scattered around the floor of the reception area and and also inside in that um, in that suite. It was it was fascinating to hear the evidence just in relation to the firearms and, you know, actually seeing the weapons physically in court yesterday being taken out of evidence bags and being handed to the witness. And then the drama of Detective O'Leary, you know, physically examining the weapons just to make sure that they were safe. But um, aside from all of that drama, you have to remember that a life was taken in all of this. You know, it is the prosecution's case that those weapons were used to kill uh, David Byrne and Jerry the monk coach who is sitting in the dock you know listening intently with headphones on he does need the assistance of of a hearing aid he has pleaded not guilty to these to this charge he is facing the murder charge and as I said earlier the two men in the dock beside him have pleaded not guilty to those um, lesser charges of of helping the criminal organisation Frank good stuff we leave it there thanks a million for joining us this morning cheers no bother. Thanks, lads. That's uh, News Talk reporter Frank Rainey giving us the update on that trial. If you want to get in touch with us this morning, 087-9180-180 is the WhatsApp number. Now, Regatta Great Outdoors are launching their new Freddie Flintoff collection this autumn. And to celebrate, we have a €100 Regatta voucher to give away every day. And one lucky winner will get a €500 voucher to be in with a chance of winning. Tell us which German manager this is needlessly worrying about OTBAM co-host Shane Hannon's fitness heading into this week's run of shows. The game came too early for him, so it was. Um, I think he will be fine Wednesday. I hope he's fine on Wednesday, but um, um, for today it was it was too too um, too quick. You can tweet us your answer on our main Twitter page at Off the Ball, and remember, shop the Freddie Flintoff collection in store at Regatta Great Outdoors or online at regatta.ie. After the break, we're live with football writer Jonathan Wilson reacting to the news that Unai Emery will take over as the new Villa manager, as well as looking at why Pep Guardiola's Manchester City struggle tactically in the bigger games. Back after this. OTB AM Right, sometimes uh, you get dealt a good hand We had booked Jonathan Wilson to talk about Pep Guardiola And then overnight Unai Emery becomes the Aston Villa boss So I get to ask you about that as well Jonathan, good morning to you, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, how are you? Um, I'm a Villa fan, so I'm pretty happy actually, I think Should I be happy? (laughs) Um, Yes, I think so I mean, I think Emery is a very, very good coach I think uh, what we saw of him in Arsenal uh, I think A wasn't probably as bad as it was made out to be. Uh, I think there was sort of a lot of mockery of him for, um, yeah, for, for his English, which is which is a ludicrous thing to complain about. Uh, I think perhaps people hadn't quite appreciated how difficult it, it, it was to replace Wenger. But you look at his record at, at Sevilla with Real, um, you know, he 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 is a, a very very good coach. I, I have two slight notes of caution. Uh, the first is to do with, with him, which is that all his success has come in Spain, that whenever he's left Spain, it hasn't really worked out for him. So PSG, I mean, yes, he won the league there, but I think he found that very, very difficult. Yeah, PSG is an extremely difficult club to manage. Uh, Arsenal, I guess you put in the same bracket, or, well, yeah, a, a difficult club to manage for different reasons. Uh, when he went to Spartak Moscow, it didn't really work out for him, him there. Again, I think they're mitigating circumstances, but the, the three attempts he's had outside of Spain haven't been great. So that's one note of caution. And the second is to do with the club, which is if they approach, as we're led to believe, uh, Pochettino, 
and uh, Thomas Tuchel and possibly also Brendan Rodgers. I'm not seeing any sort of um, consistency, anything that links those four coaches. Um, have you know that that feels like they're just going for famous people, uh, th- you know, three of whom happen to be former PSG managers. So I I, I would worry that there's a, a sort of lack of a uh, overarching plan behind the scenes. But yeah, maybe maybe they feel that that they're at a stage of a development where they need a coach to to lead that development after what I think was a pretty dismal failure of the Stephen Gerrard year. Yeah, it, it's funny you bring up the celebrity of those of that list and um, I was actually thinking that this is kind of a reaction to the Gerrard failure. It's like somebody with vast experience versus somebody who was really at the start of their, you know, apart from the three and a half years or two and a half years at Rangers, like uh, a very inexperienced coach who is very famous as a player. Here is somebody who is very experienced comparatively who doesn't have a, a stellar playing career behind him um, and very uh, often clubs and international um, federations who don't really know what they're doing they go one way and then they whoosh, that didn't work so let's go the complete diametrically opposite um, which would suggest that it's not particularly visionary uh, or it's not part of an overarching plan yeah I mean I, I think that's true I think what 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 Gerard plus the, the you know those four names who just listed have in common is they are really well known so I, I'd um, yeah what I'd like my club sporting director to be doing is saying right this is the sort of football we want to play here's my I don't know list of I don't know half a dozen players for every every position who we might be targeting we're monitoring them looking at their progress looking at where their, 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 their contract situation is and also have a short list of maybe half a dozen coaches who you can turn to if things go wrong and those coaches I guess ideally would not necessarily be household names. They'd be, oh yeah, there's this guy who's doing brilliant stuff at, at Paderborn or, or you know, doing great stuff in the Greek league or whatever. And the, the you know, the, 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 your expertise has allowed you to identify uh, a a sort of cheap prospect, a cheap target. Um, but yeah, clearly there is a massive risk of that 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 sort of figure. Uh, Emery, I, I think, is somebody worth worth having a punt on because, as I say, I think his, I think he's probably better than Villarreal. Uh, I think he's probably undervalued in, in this country, certainly. Um, and in, in terms of having success with with a club who's just outside the elite, so you know, success in Spain wasn't with Real Madrid or Barcelona; it was with Sevilla and Villarreal. Um, that you know, if you want somebody to, to take you into the Europa League, and his record in the Europa League is is phenomenal. I mean, four wins plus another final. So I, I think there's a logic from that point of view, but but yeah, that 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 concern of what is the long term vision, and I think you've seen that with the signings. I mean, when, if you've signed Emi Buendia for what I, I think was a club record fee, and then almost immediately you're signing Felipe Coutinho, and you, uh, you know, can you play the two together? Was, did you just get Coutinho because he was famous and because he was available? Yes, uh, I, I think that that. That that has sort of dogged their decision making over the last two or three years. Yeah, there's a lo- there's a lot of those players at the club who are kind of oh we've got two players in the same position who are equally not effective at the moment. Um, what what style of football does Emery play? Is he more flexible? Does he have a particular style that he always uses everywhere? Uh, well, I think what he's very very good at doing is uh, setting up his team to frustrate better teams. I think that's why his success has really come in those two-legged European competitions. I think he's he's exceptional at that. Um, I, I, he's never really 
put together a, you know a phenomenally consistent run over a league season. So I think it, it is pretty. You know, they're not going to be massively on the front foot. They're not going to be massively attacking. I think his strength is in creating a team that's going to be solid and going to attack well on the break. Um, whether the squad is ideally suited for that, I'm I'm not convinced. Um, I, I, I think the the issues at the centre of defence I think would test any coach. Um, he obviously has worked with with Carlos before, as and when he he returns to fitness. So yeah, he he he's from the slight, sort of slightly more controlled side of Spanish football rather than the the, the sort of free flowing uh, uber possession style. So don't expect um, blood and thunder and lots of excitement in my football watching future. <laughs> Well, no, but I think it will be a lot more fun than Gerard. So, okay. you know, well, that wouldn't be uh, right. re- relative terms, yeah. Um, we were due to talk last week, uh, but the Gremlins were in the system about uh, Pep Guardiola and this uh, body of evidence that's growing about. Um, well, I, I don't know how to phrase this without kind of making it too black and white, but it does certainly seem as if sometimes instead of picking his best players in his best positions, he decides to respond to what he expects the opposition to do and then therefore hands the um, the opposition an opportunity to get into games where you sometimes feel like if he just plays his best players, it could be 2-0 at half-time and the game would largely be over. You've you've done loads of work. You've, you've written about this extensively. A week on, and now knowing everything we know about this Liverpool team... Wait, what 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 was in Pep's head in the build up to the Liverpool game? I mean, it's it's uh, I think in, in many ways it's just sort of the, the greatest narrative certainly on the pitch of, of football over the last sort of ten years or so that you have this brilliant coach who is habitually in charge of brilliant teams with brilliant players and you just sort of think well just go out and do it and they would win more often than not and yet again and again and again in the biggest games particularly in Europe he. He fails, um, and, and you know his record in Europe. Given how successful he's been domestically, given the, the stature of club he's been in charge of, to only have won the Champions League twice—remarkable achievement as that is—it um, it feels like he's falling short. And I, I think the fact that he had the success early, um, you know, win it, wins it in two thousand nine, wins it in two thousand eleven, and you look at the way that that Barcelona team, which I think is probably the greatest team of my my lifetime. The way they, they, they went out the Champions League in both 2010 and 2012. So 2010, the game against Mourinho's Inter, where they were 3-1 down from the first leg. And they, they win 1-0, but that's not enough. And they have 81% of the ball and all the shots in the world and they can't score. Then almost even more freakish for defeat to Chelsea in the semi-final in 2012. And it, it's like those two defeats, which, which you should be able to write off as freaks, but it's like they've sort of got in his head. And he sort of think, well, what caused them? Oh, it was because we got done on the break. So we, what we've got to do is we've got to stop ourselves getting done on the break. And then everything he does to prevent getting caught on the break somehow seems to make his team even more vulnerable while also diminishing the the, the attacking qualities they have. So you, you saw that um, when when Bayern lost to Atletico, uh, which was was that also semi final in 2016. Uh, and yes. They were by far the better team, but somehow luck went against them. And the more that luck's gone against him, the unluckier he seems to get. And the more he seems to make these these tweaks and these changes. Um, so, you know, I think the Lyon game is the one that you sort of think, oh, yeah, it's Lyon. They were mid-table side in France. Just go out and batter them in the same way you'd batter, you know, uh, Villa or Brighton or, or whoever. 
Um, but switched to a back three and uh, they got done by Maxwell Corney. And then even Liverpool last week, I mean, Klopp has a better record than any other coach against Guardiola. Certainly if any coach who's played more than sort of four or five games against him, I think he's the only coach who's got a better than 50% record. And there's something in Klopp's football which clearly uh, Guardiola teams find hard to play against. But Liverpool this season have not been good. You sort of think well, it's an opportunity for City just to go out, just to play. And they almost certainly would overwhelm them in the way that, you know, Fulham on the opening day of the season, although it was only a 2-2 draw, Fulham had by far the better of that game. You think, well, if you have that, plus you have Haaland, you will win. And yet he goes to that sort of hybrid formation, that sort of semi-back three. He's got Cancelo playing as a right wing back rather than on the left, where he was far less effective. Uh, we'd seen the previous season that Foden against James Milner. I mean, Milner should have been sent off last season. Foden absolutely destroyed him in that game. But rather than just letting Foden run at him, he plays him slightly deeper in a sort of semi-left wing-back role. And he, I, I, I think it's even if you can make a, a rational case for each of those tactical switches, I think the cumulative effect is, is twofold. So one is, it's just not the shape City are used to. And I accept that he makes tweaks all the time that we perhaps don't acknowledge. But that was a radical shift from that basic 4-3-3 template. So some of that um, familiarity, some of that naturalness, some of that cohesion has gone. But also, I think players have begun now to sort of think, oh, God, what's he done? He's done it again. And so I certainly heard uh, players talking about that in, in the aftermath of the Champions League final against Chelsea. And I heard Chelsea players saying the opposite. They looked at the City team sheet and thought, he's done it again. So overthinking maybe is a sort of an oversimplistic way of putting it. But there is this tendency to make changes that are probably needless uh, in, in, in the biggest games. And I find it fascinating that he is like this, this, this Greek tragic hero, that he has this fatal flaw that undermines him over and over again. No. And, it, and the great thing is where City could just be this sort of steamroller charging through everything, winning everything all the time. The, the humanness, that, 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 that human frailty, that doubt means that they don't. And, and that, I think, is a, from a dramatic, from a narrative point of view, is, is, is fascinating. I think that that Foden example you bring up, Jonathan, is a perfect one. Like, you're, if you're a City fan, you're, you're watching that game, going, "Jesus, just let let the man get forward." I mean, as you said, he's he's tormented Milner in the past, so so not encouraging him to do the same was seemed a very strange one. And and look, that this back three or de facto back three, as you say, like if it's set up to to stop City being so vulnerable in the counter attack, the reality is it just didn't work. So, do you think going forward, Pep is gonna? Uh, Continue with it? Is he is he dogged and and arrogant like that? That he's going to say no, no. Next time we're gonna we're gonna try it again. Or do you think he'll he'll learn from his mistake? Uh, I, I don't think it's an arrogance. I think if anything, it's the opposite. I think it's it's an insecurity that he knows that's yeah. There's this brilliant yeah. No no team is perfect. The blanket is never quite big enough. There's always a slight gap. And in 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 Guardiola teams, it, it is that uh, because they play the high line. They and because they they hold possession so well that a direct ball, a quick ball over the top can can undo them. Um, now Guardiola previously has tried to counter that, you know, that 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 line he came out with, which I, to be honest, it took me a long time to really sort of work out what he meant. And I think we're only really it's only really this season that I think I fully understood what he meant because we're now seeing the opposite. And that line is that when City win the ball unless there's a chance, a really obvious chance of an immediate counter-attack, 
he doesn't want his team to do what a Klopp team would do, which is just to surge forward and try and hit the opposition when, when they're not quite set. He wants his team to control possession, control the ball. He says have 15 passes to get set. Because if you attack before that, you're not ready for the opposition to counter against you. And that, that I think, is one of the reasons why, at its worst, Guardiola football can be a little bit sterile, a little bit tepid, because you don't have that sort of end-to-end nature you get with, with a Klopp team, for instance, uh, that it is very much about control. But when you have Erling Haaland there, you can't play like that. Because if you look at the Community Shield, when Haaland was widely criticised, where I think he had, what, 16 touches he had or something? But then you, you, you look at you watch it back and you look at how many runs he made where the ball wasn't being played quickly enough. And if, if the ball had just been knocked into space, an easy pass uh, for anybody, never mind the Kevin De Bruyne or Bernardo Silva, and the passes wasn't played because they were they were getting set, ready to prepare the structure in case they lost the ball and they were counted against. But Holland needs the ball quickly. That's one of his great strengths. And not to play to that would make no sense. So they are going a bit more direct. But I think... What that does is it exacerbates that vulnerability that's already there. And you saw that the game against Newcastle when they were 3-1 down. You saw it against Palace when they were 2-0 down and should have been 3-0 down. Um, that, 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 that flaw that's always been there is, is there but magnified. Now, whether the extra goal threat of Holland is, is worth that, I think we'll only see in the last stages of, of Europe. City scoring lots of goals is almost irrelevant. They've been the top scorer in the Premier League for the last five seasons. If Haaland means they score 10%, 20% more goals, well, sort of so what? What's important is, in those in the Champions League quarterfinal, semi-final, final, does that increase vulnerability to a thing that they're already worried about? Is that counteracted by the fact they can also now score goals when not in control, when not necessarily played particularly well? He gave a relatively interesting interview to um, Jan Agafjortoft. There's 10 minutes of it on um, Fjortoft's Twitter, if anybody wants to watch it, where he didn't have the usual kind of um, slightly patronising attitude towards the questions. He was interested and engaged in them. And uh, I don't know if I believe him or not, but he says that the first thing he does is he looks at his players and then he adapts the style of play to the players that he has available to him. Now, maybe on a week-to-week basis... Uh, or when he, when he arrived at Bayern Munich that might have been something he did and clearly at Man City he's been there long enough to they're all his players really but the the arrival of, of Haaland and um, injecting him into the team the way you're speaking about it kind of forces a bit of a rethink there and and maybe it's true maybe maybe having Erling Haaland means he is going to ask his players not to have the 15 passes before they ping one long just to ping ping a few long and let's see what happens is th- is this where the evolution comes and and maybe he he himself becomes more automatic in his thinking as opposed to in himself so much uh I, well i don't think it's automatic i think he he will look at holland and he'll say right we've got this extraordinary asset how do we use him best and we've seen i think an evolution uh, i mean that goal uh was it the first goal against brighton on saturday was just edison smacked it long like you wouldn't have seen i mean any yeah. It's an absurd thing to say, to, to say you wouldn't have seen him doing that to Sergio Aguero because Aguero wouldn't have relished that type of pass. He certainly wouldn't, wouldn't have done it last season when he didn't really have a forward and he'd have been pinging it, yeah, Foden playing as a false nine or something. So I, I think we are seeing them play more, more direct. Uh, the, uh, the game against West Ham, you saw how much more direct they were. Um, I think City certainly in the Premier League or the early stages of the Champions League, 
they're never going to be that direct because teams very rarely come out against them so there's no space to hit with direct passing you've, you've sort of got to manipulate the space a bit to to create that space so I, you know, Guardiola I think um, I think he has evolved I think I think he's evolved a lot since what since 2008 uh, you know I think that's been one of the fascinations is, is what you know, the last sort of decade or so is watching how he and Klopp have, have both evolved. They've challenged each other and they've, they've both learned from that. Um, so, yeah, you, you evolve from changes in football, you, you evolve from the players you have available and you evolve from what the opposition is doing against you. Um, I, I don't think there's ever been any doubt that Guardiola is... It's not that he has his one true method and applies that in all circumstances. Yeah, he's he's always tweaked it and changed it. The 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 danger is of a, the the thing that's un, undone him. I think in in certain Champions League games is that he he's done that too much. He almost hasn't trusted himself, hasn't trusted his process enough. Whereas maybe more relaxed coach would just sort of say, "We're the best team in Europe. Go out and win it." I'd love to see what would happen if he did that. Just like how those yeah. players would respond, it would be it'd be. Uh, look, maybe maybe he gets done on a counter attack in that game, and we're all like, "Oh, that's uh, you. You are well cursed." The, the the time he sort of did that was when Bayern went to Barcelona in 2015, and he sort of I, I, you know it was almost like the logic was nothing we can do will stop Lionel Messi, so let's just go for it. Let, let let's press really hard. Let's press really high. I don't know if you remember that game, but. It was, I think it was still nil-nil after about 75 minutes and Barca went on to win 3-0 because Bayern were absolutely shattered. But that first 20 minutes, half an hour, Barcelona could have been 4 or 5 nil up. And I think he's he's also got that warning in his mind that if we are too loose, that's what can happen. Mm. And I also just think that the person he is, if he... Yeah, all the success he's had, everything, even as a player, has been through analysis. It's been thinking. You know, as a player, he wasn't naturally a great player. He was a great mental player. You know, he, he, he tactically, he was a great player. Um, technically, he was a very good player, but it was, it was tactically, he was a great player. And, and if he didn't do the research, if he didn't make those little tweaks and make, make those little changes, and then it failed, I, I think that he, he would really feel like he'd, he'd let himself down. I, I mean, if he, the thing that, um, I'm always conscious of with this is do you remember after the Bielsa and the Spygate furore when he gave, when Bielsa gave that two hour press conference and somebody I think asked the question why do you need to do all this research in, into the opposition when yeah, you have bundles of data and bundles of research that you can just yeah, you subscribe to, to to some service and you just download it and Bielsa said something like uh, I have to look under every rock, even though I know it is useless, because if I didn't, I wouldn't be true to myself and I would never forgive myself. And I wonder if there's something in, in similarly neurotic about Guardiola that he he feels that, that his job is to investigate every permutation, to investigate every combination, to to analyse everything. And if he doesn't do that, if he did just sort of say, go out and play, that that he would be letting down the club, letting himself down professionally. 
Um, Jonathan, I know you, you wrote a match report on the, the Chelsea United game at the weekend, and which probably leads me to believe you're in the press box there with a close vantage point in Stafford Bridge to, to the two managers. What, what were your main takeaways from, from that game? And, and I guess seeing Eric Ten Hag up close, he's uh, reportedly sitting down with his, uh, his, his number seven, Cristiano Ronaldo, today for, for peace talks. But um, he certainly wasn't holding back with, the, with, with those uh, celebrations late in the game with, with Casemiro's goal. But a fascinating game to be at, I, I'd imagine. Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm very glad I was doing the follow-up, not the runner, because I think that would have been an incredibly difficult game to write on live, because it was one of those matches where you, you couldn't sort of say, oh, this is just rubbish, and, and sort of slag the game off and say, this is really boring, nothing's happened. It was constantly intriguing, but it was very difficult to know which way it was going to go. So one of the great things, with the, the where, the, where the press box is at Stamford Bridge, uh, you're right behind the away dugout. So... Um, when uh, Fred came on, what was that 51 minutes, something like that? What was fascinating was just how much information he was given before he came on. Ten Hag had this magnetic, magnetic tactics board um, and was you know, clearly, it was, must have been a good sort of minute, minute and a half of instructions. Then there was one of the, the younger backroom staff uh, who, who had a, an iPad. I, I couldn't actually see what was on the iPad, so it was very difficult to know what he was being shown. Um, but there must have been a good, I reckon, sort of three to four minutes of tactical instruction to Fred before he went on. And so the fact that um, you saw Chelsea change shape from a back three to, to that midfield diamond uh, after, what was that, about 35 minutes, the, the, the Potter changed that. Mm. And you saw the, the, the pattern of a game change that United's having been pretty dominant, suddenly were forced back 10 or 15 yards. And then I guess... Ten Hag was just seeing how the beginning of the second half played out before he made the change, and and they went to a diamond as well to to, to match it up. So yeah, it was it was, um, it was one of those games where you really saw uh, coaches making tactical changes, and, and you saw the impact of that straight away. So I I, I, I mean, I think, yeah, I think Chelsea obviously will be frustrated to concede that late, but a draw was probably right. And I think you saw just just how high a level both those coaches are. Uh, are working at and the thing that's impressive with Ten Hag has been just how how steely he's been there was a moment in that Brentford game when they lost 4-0 when he looked a bit isolated and looked a bit lost on the touchline and then the fact that the following day even if it was only symbolic having the players in doing that punitive 13k run because they ran 13k less than Brentford and now you look at him in press conferences and there is just that glint of something slightly dangerous and slightly unhinged in his eye <laughs> and I think you probably have to have that to face Sam Ronaldo and he has done that and he's got all the cards now you know, he, he's, he's effectively won that battle it, it can't go any other way now he's, he's managed to take a situation where uh, all of Ronaldo's fans in the media and there's loads of them who are week in week out at the start of this oh he needs to be in the team what a great goal scorer what a great presence around the place suddenly Ronaldo is diffident obstreperous egotistical selfish all these things that he was at the start but now everybody is saying it it's um, you know if you were to stand back cause, cause I, I thought it was a ludicrous thing to say I couldn't put him on to humiliate him in the derby uh, but actually, he was happy to put him on for two minutes at the end of the Spurs game. So he was playing a long game, and uh, he seems to have won it very hands down. Yeah, I mean, if he's if he's been playing a game, it might, it might just be that he did what he thought was right. You know, that he he wanted Ronaldo on that last sort of well, two minutes plus injury time, just to hold the ball up, um, give him an outlet. But it, it's worked out very very well for him. Uh, and I guess maybe if he if, if this was some sort of conscious 
plan, that was exactly the right time to do it after United's best performance in, I don't know, certainly well over a year. Uh, and I think that's the other thing. It's, it's not just Ronaldo's behaviour. It's the fact that United now are actually playing good football again. That that that, that win against Spurs, they were, they were incredibly impressive. The first half hour against Chelsea, they were, they were well on top. Um, a 1-1 draw to Stamford Bridge is a, is a good result and a, you know, it, was a, it was a high level of game. So I think the fact that there is obvious progress there, uh, it's you know, now's the time. To, I mean, then the progress has come because Ronaldo's not on the team. And when he does play, as he did against Newcastle, um, as he has in a couple of Europa League games, they've looked pretty flat. They've lacked that, that fluency and mobility up front. So that even when Rashford is missing chances, uh, his movement is... Yeah, it makes United function better. And I think that, I mean, I think that was always true, but I think it's become really obvious now. Jonathan, great stuff. Thanks a million for joining us. That was great. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. It's Jonathan Wilson there. You can read his stuff in The Guardian um, and other places, of course, but uh, yeah, uh, loads of books out as well. Um, very interesting. Yeah. I mean, the, and yeah, Snaffer Bridge Press Box is one of those places apparently where you do get a good vantage point. But like to see Ten Hag's body language change over the over the last number of weeks and months has been it definitely has been notable. Um, I think United fans at the start were like, uh, he's one of these managers again who just sits in the dugout and kind of stands the touchline, doesn't really gesticulate like like, like Klopp or Guardiola. But all of a sudden, he needed uh, to get in. He needed to like it needed to be his. You know, the, he needed to win a few of those battles. And, yeah. uh Like the way the way it's working out. Like I was definitely why aren't you playing Casemiro if he needs game time? Yeah. He's not going to get game time unless you give him game time. Give him game time. But, um, you know, Casemiro seems happy enough with how things are going at the moment. Yeah. Uh, he's going to be coming into an excellent vein of form just in time for the World Cup. And he's going to remember how it was all managed properly. And Said. Ten Hag's his guy. When all the rest of the players who he signed are all his guys. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually fascinated to hear the, the insight as well. That Fred got so much detailed prep before he came on. But but it, but the point there is that Fred is one of those players who's the, he's the Rottweiler for the team. So you can take every, it. every manager has loved him. Solskjaer, Reinick, Ten Hag. They've all played him in games, which which speaks testament to him. He obviously follows instructions, so maybe that's why he's. They all keep picking him. Exactly. True. Yeah. It's eight forty this morning. OTBAM is brought to you live with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mo. It's nearly time for us all to shave down. Uh, you can sign up or donate now at movember.com. Time for the sports pages. There are so many idiots out there. So many spoofers. There's a lot of horse. <laughs> I think he's a total spoofer. What do you mean a spoofer? He's a bullshitter. Ah, no, Emma, come on, don't, don't be, no, I'm not, yes. no. Uh, Gonna run you through the sports pages, and... Uh, is there an archive section? Here we go. So, uh, back page of the Herald... Uh, Sky End GA TV deal as BBC weighed in wings and FAI kit supplier get legal advice. It was a mad day yesterday for uh, for news, as I said. Rocket Gibraltar and um, Michael Carrick also. And of course, Shamrock Rovers crowned champions. That's uh, Jamie McGonagall failing to score last night. Uh, Derry City was obviously failing to score against, um, Shamrock, against Sligo Rovers. So Rovers did Rovers a favour. The truce is out there. Ron and Ten Hag hope to make peace. I guess... You might want him for a few games. In the meantime, he wants to play some minutes. Mm. The, we're now at the end game, so it's like, well, I want my legacy to be that I, you know, yeah, I was, I was a good guy. At best for Ronaldo, now, like he, he stays to the end of the season, maybe. It's, it feels unlikely at the minute, but um, maybe he does. I mean, he, Sheriff on Thursday night, I'd be surprised if he didn't. 
play some part in that given he's played in the Europa League games thus far um, so if the talks go well today then he should be back in the team but yeah for well, how long we'll see back on the bench well, well he'll he probably start in the Europa League sorry in the Europa League sure yeah. but uh, aside from that don't care yeah. About. Uh, yeah true uh, no carbs in Marbs says Pep Did they? I thought Marbs was just an exclusively a Sunday independent circuit 2005 thing it's actually how the rest of the world refers to Marbella as well it must be it must be it's a great phrase Pep Guardiola has told Erling Haaland to watch what he eats on his winter holiday to ensure he returns in tip top shape because like he's got a track record of letting himself go right Pep yeah well I mean he's, he's spoken about his diet before and he drinks or he eat, there's a high fibre diet he has in his in his hometown in, in Norway apparently but uh, like that, there was a couple of fascinating pieces in the paper today but Haaland's sleep regime gets to bed about 10 half 10 every night seems late I would have said he was like a have thought so. George W. Bush 7 o'clock in the yeah. evening puts on his uh, happens after 7 o'clock when you're leader of the free world <laughs> yeah. he puts on his orange glasses or his uh, I guess the LA, or blue light glasses to uh, sleep himself or to get himself ready for sleep apparently every night and um, he has the phone on Do Not Disturb for hours before he goes to bed so he's not distracted uh, all of this we're fascinated by because it's Ernie Haaland but it shouldn't be that surprising I'd like to think most professional footballers have a no. pretty rigorous sleep re- regime maybe they do maybe maybe the the lifestyle of footballers has changed and they're not all just out playing golf um, Pep says he is going to be playing golf he's a, uh, Haaland is a house in he will play golf and hopefully not eat much and drink much <laughs> Well, all, all footballers seem to, to enjoy a little bit of golf in their, in their downtime. I think a lot of them didn't play any... Uh, Gordon Strachan was anti-golf while you were playing. Right. When you're retired, fine, do what you want. But it takes up, like, five hours in your feet. You should be resting and recovering. Ah, use the buggies. It's grand. Uh, well, I mean, you know, I suppose they, all, they, do, they do have the them old buggies these days. Uh, if they are champions the players will be really positive or the guys knocked out might have more holidays the incredible schedule you've seen how many players will miss the World Cup because of this insane calendar people are used to it this is Pep kind of basically saying nothing well um, usual know, giving us the marbs and carbs carbs and marbs headline yeah. the um, uh, Irish Times have an interesting picture from Leinster training that's legendary New Zealander Kieran Reid who's just visiting he was visiting Munster was he at the Leinster Munster game as a guest of Leinster or was he at the Leinster Munster game as a guest of um, Munster he was in the UK last week so he came over for the game on Saturday and was around for the weekend he met a few of the lads for lunch yesterday I would have met him last night for a bite to eat and he was in first thing this morning he's been around all day he's been great very good just in terms of mindset he's one of the iconic figures of the game I wonder is he like you know is there there a coaching job in the offing or is it just um, just having the crack I'd say just having the crack no, I could have egg in my face when he's confirmed as part of some coaching ticket thereafter. But um, yeah, I'd say those those guys love that. Go around to the Irish provinces when they're over here for a visit and get the insight. Um, but yeah, decent game to be at if, if he was at the game at the weekend. But into the Leinster domination era. Uh, Sky Sports and GA pull plug a nine-year broadcasting deal, and there's a picture of uh, it's Gordon McElwain and it's uh, Jim McGuinness. Um, Watching the Cork Kerry semi-final last May, and um, I I just think that uh, this the competition was good. Yeah, competition has been good. It has driven standards. Uh, I don't really remember any innovation coming from RTE's coverage of GAA. I remember plenty coming from TG Car's coverage. Mm-hmm. I remember plenty coming from Sky's coverage. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe somebody out there is going to get in touch and say, "Well, they did this, 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 and this." But no, I, I think a monopolistic right. situation has not been good for them in the past in terms of creativity and innovation. Sky came along and were like, better pundits, better host, 
look, Grania McElwain was brilliant. The pundits were brilliant, um, and that's probably something that we that we're forgetting here as well. Is there's a human element, and not just the, the front front of camera. There's a lot of jobs lost because of this Sky News as well. Um, interesting to see where the broadcasting rights go from here. And, and look, maybe the GEA have it all sorted out, and the BBC are going to get a little rake of games. And I, I, look, I'd worry that a lot of games are going to go to the streaming services and GEA go. And well, there's no other streaming services that are going to take it. So, well, yeah. like, so there will be uh, increased games on BBC Northern Ireland, according to several reports here, which would suggest that um, that has been. Um, briefed out. I, I don't know that. I know that BBC Northern Ireland were interested. The one thing about that is I don't know if they've been using HD on their games. So you're flicking yeah. and you're like, again, better coverage, better pundits because they would use Canavan yeah. and um, Mickey Hart have, and these lads, and they have McGinney on after he gets knocked out, which is always interesting to watch. Um, but I, I don't know. Like, do, do you, you probably need like because and that's one of the issues with the Sky had was that the amount of games and you're trying to cover them right. Um, like maybe there could be a Monday night. Um, highlights show that's been mooted as well because you can't get all the games into the Sunday game anyway um, I'd love to see a, a, our state broadcaster have a, a dedicated sports channel now I know that's something that again takes money and understandable but I mean I wouldn't because I, cause why, like, why don't they just let other <clears throat> other broadcasters like Virgin who would have covered stuff in the past why, why are we using the taxpayers money to cover stuff that Virgin would have used in the past what's happened here is that RT have taken the taxpayers money bundled it together and pre- it's preventing <clears throat> other broadcasters from having it like <clears throat> pardon me they've obviously made it too expensive and not economically viable for Virgin even though it makes perfect sense for Virgin to do stuff like this yeah yeah Virgin mustn't, mustn't have an, in, an interest in it because, the, because it's too expensive well this is the thing well it's been yeah. driven up by the by, so RT gets all this money from us the, the free to air thing is like well you pay your licence fee so yeah. it's not free to air Virgin is free to air we don't pay them any money we don't give them any money as a country yeah and they produce top quality again you would say their rugby coverage is better and has been traditionally better since they've started doing it and when you read when you read Sky's statement after you're kind of like I understand that you know they wanted more league games because the league in, in the football especially is where it's at well and also the league the league until TG Carr came along and started showing Sunday games nobody really cared about the league yeah. and then they turned it into something and then Satanta back in the day came along <laughs> on Saturday nights and turned Saturday nights into something and then eventually it works and RT you're like oh, I will do this now now that somebody else is um made the hard yards and, and proved it was going to work a very interesting point here from Sean Kelly right the worst thing of all would be a monopoly because with that comes complacency so Sky Go uh, Sky Go GA Go mm. is actually still RTE's coverage it's going to be their broadcasters and their team doing it and like what is the incentive for them to come up with the uh, Envision um Replay or the the puck out, which you, you see in TG Car, which is brilliant. Yeah. Where's the ball? Where's the ball? Where's the ball? We're watching the replay, and then there's a score down the fire, and you're like, how did that happen? But why can't they just do that? You never miss it on TG Car. I don't know. I don't know. TG Car have been doing it for a couple of years now, and I don't know why they haven't done it. Nobody, but they still it. haven't. I, there, there's a fear, and there might be a fear in RT that they're going to be seen as copying the the best things from Sky, the best things from TG Car, the best things. Well, I mean, from... that wouldn't be the first time. No, no, but that's what, that's where the Sunday game kind of came out of. Came out of the match of the day, and and that premise of sitting down and and. and Analyzing games properly, but but it hasn't really, as you say, developed. <laughs> you know, there's been, there have been other channels that have that have gone there, and as you said, the, the behind the closed or behind the uh, the goals, puckouts and kickouts gave us something different. Um, even just the, the the whiteboards or not the whiteboards, but the the interactive boards that the that Peter Canavan and the lads used during the games. Like I remember watching our Armagh Monaghan game a couple of years ago, and halftime I was thinking, this is brilliant. 
this is like normally at half time of an RT you get a couple of questions in and it's fairly blase stuff great pundits but blase enough coverage because they don't get the time to analyse it in depth I, but on Sky you have the time to some of the pundits were not great but go on yeah no it's fair it's fair and a lot of them are subjective but I mean the Sky analysis has been always brilliant yeah so now I, I, you don't I get, get a, you don't get uh, moralising from the commentator going oh this is rubbish you get explainers about why these two teams have matched up the way they have yeah so I'd be concerned I, I, I'm going to hold fire on, on opinions until I see the final broadcast deal which I don't know if it's due today today, or today, today yeah. so this, this evening you'll, you'll get it all this evening and you'll find out exactly I don't I don't know what's happening with the TV I can't I, so I mean unless there's a rabbit out of a hat yeah. it's going to be GA Go that you subscribe to on a match by match basis or maybe you can get a season ticket I don't know to get um, whatever it is they're showing which well, will be Mick Foley was fascinated on it last night with Joe because he was kind of talking about you know if the BBC get more games and look if they, if they pick up kind of Sky's uh, way of, of going about it and they get the All-Ireland semi-final and say the All-Ireland final do they put the All-Ireland final on the generic BBC as opposed to just BBC Sport and I because that brings an increased traffic of viewers who weren't GA fans that Sky Sports brought in from the UK perhaps no doubt no doubt no, like no doubt uh, more BBC would be good yeah especially if it's going to be on their main channel but again if it's not on HD like I, know. I mean what year are we in if it's not on HD so uh, hopefully it will be I love Nimlock I think he's great I think their panel is great I think their coverage is great because they all clearly love and are emotionally invested in yeah. the um, the coverage and uh, you know again I think that's not going to be a necessarily a bad thing but like no no competition if there's no competition then standards will and we've seen this in every industry in the world standards will decline so fingers crossed there is competition today yeah. I, it'd be great if there was I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing exactly what is announced um, that's all going to come a little bit later and no doubt we'll be talking about it again on the show tomorrow if you've got a view 087-9180-180 is the WhatsApp number or you can leave a comment in the YouTube stream now what else is going on in the world Carl Milani is with us Carl good morning to you good morning lads how's it going how are you very good can't complain uh, Shamrock Rovers collected another Electricity League Premier Division title last night. Uh, Sligo was doing them a little bit of a favour by playing out an ill-all draw uh, with uh, second place Derry City at the showgrounds. That means that uh, the hoops cannot be caught now. Rovers fans, summer, Sligo Rovers fans, in a very difficult spot last night, right? Yeah. What did you actually want to happen? No, I mean you, want, you have to win the you have to try and win the game, don't you? Well, at the same time, you've the Shamrock Rovers champions. <laughs> well, they were going to be champions anyway. I think so, uh, look at I mean, Derry City had a really good season and potentially will win the cup. Uh, they play Shelburne in the final, so I think it's going to be a very good year and potential for a real rivalry to develop now between Shamrock Rovers and Derry City. I think because Derry have certainly set out their stall in terms of investment in their squad and have a brilliant manager in uh, Rory Higgins so watch this space uh, heading towards next season but the two sides actually meet on Sunday at Tallis Stadium and Shamrock Rovers will be presented with the trophy afterwards. Elsewhere at the bottom of the table last night a significant result for UCD they played out a one all draw with Shelburne they're three points ahead of Finn Harps and those two sides play against each other on Friday uh, UCD are in ninth and Finn Harps occupying that uh, dread a 10th spot and if Finn Harps lose that match they will be relegated uh, to the first division. Uh, last night in the Premier League West Ham playing out a 2-0 win over Bournemouth. Their manager David Moyes says they're moving in the right direction and he's pleased with their home form at the London Stadium. The Hammers now up to 10th in the table. Mark Travers came on at half time there for Bournemouth in place of the injured Neto. Uh, Unai Emery the new manager of Aston Villa he joins from Villarreal where he won the Europa League in 2021. He 
replaces Stephen Gerrard, set to officially take up the role on the 1st of November. Champions League action tonight. Manchester City can secure top spot in Group G. They take on Borussia Dortmund in Germany from 8. At the same time in Group F, Celtic take on Shakhtar Donetsk at Parkhead. And from 5.45 in Group E, it's Chelsea against Salzburg. Uh, Donegal finally have their new senior football management team in place. Paddy Carr is the new manager. He'll be joined by head coach Aidan O'Rourke of Armagh. Carr, previously a manager of the Loud Senior Footballers, as was Aidan O'Rourke. And uh, Carr also won an All-Ireland club title as manager of Kilmico Croaks uh, back in 2009. And in some cricket news this morning, Phil Simmons set to step down as the West Indies head coach later this year. It follows their surprise early exit at the T20 World Cup, where they actually lost to Ireland in the group stage and also to Scotland as well. And Simmons was previously the Ireland head coach before moving to that role with the West Indies. What do you make of the uh, Donegal appointment? It's, it's an one. interesting one, yeah. It, yeah. Look, it's it's one of those appointments where you're like, I, I had heard that both Paddy Carr and, and Aidan O'Rourke were going for the job, but it seems that they combined their resources in order to become the, the combined It team. seems to be the done thing these days, right? Yeah, and <coughs> it wasn't the, the plan from the outset, for, for, by all accounts. Um, but Paddy Carr, look, fan of man, he was involved in ratifying Declan Boner as well, so he's he's been at the forefront of a lot of decisions in Donegal. Like, he's he's been a school principal, I think, in, in a school in Navan. He, he is, yeah, he's given it up now. He's yeah, it up, so. <coughs> that's an interesting point, isn't it, that he's given up his job. Colm O'Rourke gave up his <laughs> job. Now, both maybe had it intended McStay's to. McStay's retired yeah, as well, isn't he? Yeah, McStay. Jack O'Connor made similar comments as well that he wouldn't be in charge of Kerry if he wasn't at a stage in his life where he can devote that much time. Yeah. And it probably, I mean, there has to be a wider discussion probably on the significant demands on inter-county managers right now. Well, there was a plan to pay managers, um, you know, and say this is an important role. We acknowledge that you can only do it unless, like, so if you only want rich people or retired people, fair enough. <clears throat> That's what's going to happen. Well, yeah, and I, I'll even look at in, in my own county of Monaghan, like Vinnie Corey was—he was, he was my economics teacher in school. He's now he's still teaching in, in uh, our ladies in, in Casablanca, so he's not giving up that job. But again, being a principal maybe is a different level of commitment to, to being a regular teacher. But um, the Donegal one's fascinating because I was kind of thinking for ages is this job ever going to go over the line because once Rory Cavanagh pulled out you're like well he was the shoe in uh, everyone thought he was just waiting for St Unions to be knocked out of the championship but when he eventually turned it down you're like well where are they going to go from here uh, and from, from Donegal's perspective like I was just looking at their Ulster draw there for next season reasonably kind they've got down in the quarterfinals Cavanagh or Antrim or Armagh in the semis but they're well off the top sides the last couple of years like it's, it's the 17th season for Michael Murphy McBrady's getting on Ryan McHugh's getting on they have a few lads coming in as well but from a Donegal perspective, and we spoke to Declan Boner about this, like the, the the Ulster final against Derry last year was so disappointing the way it took it out of them, didn't it? And then Armagh the, the second day around. So, uh, and it's kind of maybe been on a slide since the Cavan Ulster final of twenty twenty, which they should have won that COVID final at the Athletic Grounds. But um, yeah, from a Donegal perspective. I'd be interested to hear what Donegal fans think about this ticket, but Aidan O'Rourke is a man with a with a great football brain. Oh yeah, and, and I mean Paddy Paddy Carr has been there done. I didn't realise Paddy Carr was a Donegal man, to be honest. So. Yeah, fan of, um So yeah, I mean the fact that he's had joy with Kilmacud um, at North Ireland level, the expectations are fairly low. I would yeah, say for it's Donegal, a good, good way to be coming in, I think. Yeah, and their fitness levels were a big issue last year as well. I think that was pointed out by by a number of pundits, but. I'd be fascinated to see where they go with this this year. Uh, you want to get to an Ulster final because obviously that helps for your championship in the round robin and that sort of thing as well this season. So 
from a Donegal perspective they need to hit the ground running the league campaign is going to be fairly big for them they have the Division 1 campaign to come so uh, I think yeah even though it's taken them till what late October to, to finalise the management after the Donegal Championship has ended uh, the likes of Paddy Caron and Aidan O'Rourke will have had an eye on the Donegal Championship anyway so it's not like they weren't watching um, but yeah an interesting appointment uh, the fact that the two of them are, are together yeah, one last thing you wanted to talk about here was um, Sean Dyche on Monday Night Football oh Dyche you were watching as well Cahill. yeah I, mean, I enjoyed him he was very good yeah he brings a lot of value and like the, I know a lot of the, the, the kind of good stuff comes after the match because uh, as we were saying earlier the, the pre-game stuff is, is obviously focused on the match but um, the game itself kind of petered out West Ham Bournemouth last night it allowed them there was a couple of controversial handball decisions but allowed them to kind of chat with, with Daichi a, bit, a little bit more it was Jamie Carragher alongside myself and Dave Jones um, like he, he didn't hold back he said he's, he hasn't watched any football in the summer he's starting to watch football back now he's all but putting himself back in the shop window, I would say. Seems like a really good fella, I have yeah. to say. Yeah. Seems like a really, really good fella. And, um, you know, you would wish him all the very best. I, I, part of me wonders, like, if, if he was that good last night, is there a room for him just to become a well, pundit? Well, that's what I was going to say, but he strikes me as the sort of guy that is itching to get back in now because yeah. he said, he didn't, as you say, he didn't watch football for the first couple of months, but now that he's, <laughs> he's watching it more analytically now and yeah. thinking about changes that he might make if he was on the touchline. Well, I think he mentioned, uh, he mentioned itchy feet as you know, yeah. he wants to get back into management. Like he, he was, he was, I mean, that was one of the interesting conversations they had last night. He's referred to as this 4-4-2 guy who plays defensive football, not great to watch sometimes, but he says he doesn't mind that because there's other attributes, he says, that, that are positive that don't get attributed him that the hard working the players giving their all and he says any of my teams I can promise are going to give their all like you, you, this guy took Burnley to 7th place in the, in the you Premier do League. wonder what he'd be able to do with the better quality player bit of money as well like is, is that was he, was he button up against the ceiling or is yeah. the ceiling far higher with better players like you know it's one of those things where he's very unlikely to get an opportunity at a club who has money he, like, he, very interesting when he was asked as well about Graham Potter and look he, he's a fan of Graham Potter and, and he said look he was basically asked by Carragher outright you know if you had been with Burnley last year or two and got them to a position where Brighton were in you know fourth or fifth in the Premier League table would you have been in consideration for, for the likes of that job or even down the line for an England job or for a Liverpool job and he said no absolutely not because Brighton are a, a to, I guess sexier sexier club you know new stadium new money um, and all that and Burnley kind of have this image um, so maybe that, that and he, he spoke about how image is so important in football Brighton yeah. had that image with Potter Burnley had a different image under Deitch and uh, that, that leads to him getting offered certain types of jobs and certainly not he wasn't, he wasn't mentioned for the Villa job which would have kind of been you know at the exactly. peak of where he would have been considered so. he's kind of pigeonholed isn't he into that kind of bottom half of the Premier League yeah. top half which of the championship why, which is why a year of punditry would actually completely recalibrate what people thought of him if he was to do some of those breakdowns tactical breakdowns and explain why uh, you know this formation works in this instance and do some European football matches all of a sudden yeah. chairman are looking at him going okay I'm going to give you a gig but that was one of the points made last night as well like any year we were, we're, t- we're looking at teams like Wolves and Leeds and Forest in the relegation zone at the minute or towards the bottom and, and you're trying to decide who is really in trouble when Burnley were in the relegation zones under Deitch you actually never discussed them as real relegation. Was that one year they had to win their last five yeah, games? Of course. And they squeaked out. But other years, early on, say now, yeah. October, November, if they were 19th or even 18th, you, you, you never really thought they were going to get relegated. You always thought, because it's Sean Dyche, they're going to come through, and, and, and always they did. So Maybe the thing to do is to find one of those championship clubs with a bit of cash and kind of bring them up so you get the opportunity. Uh, right, Carl, good stuff. Thanks, Thanks very much for that. More from Carl across the day. Of course, OTBAM brought to you with Gillette in association with Movember. 
effortless shave magnificent mo you can sign up or donate now at movember.com if you want to get in touch you can leave a comment in the youtube stream or of course you can always uh, get us on twitter at off the ball am listening to jonathan wilson describe guardiola's city reminds me of jim gavin's dublin yeah, a little bit. Does that mean you've got all, they've got all the resources? Is that what you're talking about? Is that, a, is that you think should be split? Uh, Patrick McHugh says, Aston Villa have done really well here. Bask in the glow, Jar. We'll see. How are you feeling? Are, are you excited? Like, I'm actually, remember I was telling you I'm going to Aston Villa United a few weeks ago, and yeah. uh, it turns out now it's going to be Unai Emery's first game in the, I'll be in the press box analysing the man very, very closely. Uh, so that'll be interesting. But, um, yeah, the fact that it's his first game, his first two games in charge, in fact, are against United. They've got the Carabao Cup either before or after that. Before, after that, so uh, uh, an interesting start for Unai Emery. Yeah, maybe Ronaldo's one of Ronaldo's last games for United. <laughs> uh, right, it's bang on nine o'clock once again. Regatta Great Outdoors are launching their new Freddie Flintoff collection this autumn, and to celebrate, we've a hundred euro regatta voucher to give away every day. One lucky winner though will get a five hundred euro voucher to be with a chance of winning just tell us who this is deliberating about whether the star guest on OTBAM will appear as scheduled on tomorrow's show the game came too early for him so it was um, I think he will be fine Wednesday I hope he's fine on Wednesday but um, um, for today it was, uh, was too too, um, too quick who's that? tweet your answer to our main Twitter page at Off The Ball and remember shop the Freddie Flintoff collection in store at Regatta Great Outdoors or online at regatta.ie here's what we've got on OTB Sports Radio for you today the Wexford 56 team talked to us um, that's a, an old piece now um, when <clears throat> obviously they were still alive uh, Dadcast at 3 career perspective Matt Holland at 4 and Joe meets Ruby Walsh at 6 is OTB Gold Matt Williams is going to pick the best 15 players he coached against next stay tuned OTB AM Right, a couple of weeks ago uh, Keith Wood picked the best 15 that he played against I'm delighted to say Matt Williams is going to pick the best 15 he coached against Matt, good morning to you how are you? Good morning to you very good mate uh, Keith Wood um, gave out to us for ruining his day when we uh, we pitched this at him um, it looks like you've done a lot of work on this as well and the players you've coached against well they're pretty good where, where did you start? what was your, your first team that you kind of took into account? Well, the first thing was I'd never thought of this. I, it had never, ever crossed my mind. And uh, when I, I, I got contacted by Colin, one of the producers, I went, wow, that's a great question. And I actually reached out to some of the guys I worked with over the years. And it took us a long time because there were just so many unbelievably good players. And, and then you become like, oh, we've forgotten so-and-so, we've forgotten so-and-so. And and when we started to list it up, what I what I, I did was I listed out some of the players, not all of them, in the positions, and then who was the best and why. But wow, it is! Uh, I could put an argument for every five other players to be in those positions, and there was just such great quality around because I, I was I was really privileged to coach against some absolutely incredible teams uh, across the decade. So uh, yeah, it's a pretty decent list. What was the earliest? team that you coached against that made the list? Well, i, I got to say, so I, I really, um, you know, like a, a good Bush lawyer, I did say who you coached against. So I went right back to the first time I coached. And I started very young. I was only, I was only 33 coaching first grade in Sydney at my old club, Eastwood Rugby Club. And, of course, I coached against uh, the great Randwick sides of that time that were basically Wallaby teams. Um, you, have, you have Wallabies. This would be, this would be like like uh, uh, Young Munster or, or Lansdowne being a Wallaby team and in their second 15 there's three or four Wallabies as well <laughs> like you just it's just off the scale you know and that was David Campuzzi I, I coached against I coached David with the Waratahs a few years later but I coached against David at club level 
But club rugby in Sydney in the 80s and 90s was the power base of, of the Wallabies that won World Cups. It was extraordinarily high standard. Uh, we look back on it now with, with this great understanding. That's what drove it. There were Wallabies everywhere. There were great players that couldn't be Wallabies. The standard was just so, so high. Look, they'd come out. The Sydney team didn't lose to an international team for 15 seasons. So every time a team would tour, including New Zealand, they would play a Sydney side, although they didn't play Sydney very often. But, you know, they beat England, they beat, uh, uh, beat Wales, beat Ireland. All of the, the great touring sides were beaten um, by that Sydney side. And that's the height, that's the quality of the competition at the time. It's deteriorated hugely since then, but that's what it was. And so would Sydney pick the best players from the clubs, even if they were Wallabies? It was kind of like, a, but you have to be playing for one of the Sydney clubs. Is that how that worked? Yeah, you had to be, you, it, was, it was the... The best players in the Sydney competition, what we call the shoot shield. Right. And um, even though Australia might lose to them a, w- a couple of weeks later, the Sydney side boot them. But they had that tradition. They played at some beautiful little grounds that we'd fill up. And, uh, you know, they, they were great players. And, and that was powered again by the Sydney schools and uh, the New South Wales schools as it was then. And, uh, you, you know, Mark Eller, the three Eller brothers, Campuzzi, like that was around with backline. <laughs> you know, I remember playing sevens against them and uh, they scored this try. We were leading them. We, we came out as an under-20s team in the sevens comp. We played around and we led them 7-0 at half time. And they just scored these impossible tries. I remember Mark Eller walking back, just looking at me and goes, sorry, mate. Like, and he meant it. He just took us apart. They, they were true. And, and Mark Eller's not on my list because I didn't coach against him or uh, Mark had... had uh, had retired. Uh, he retired at 26. Mark's the best player I ever saw, uh, or have ever seen. Oh, yeah. And, uh, Mark retired at 25. So he won the um, Grand Slam with the Wallabies in 84. And in 86, when they beat New Zealand, the last team before Ireland did to beat New Zealand in New Zealand and won at Eden Park, Mark was commentating and he was 26 years old. And he never, play, he never played in national rugby again, which is just a tragedy, absolute tragedy. Because uh, the coach at the time was a guy called Alan Jones, who was a really highly um, controversial coach. People either loved him or hated him, and uh, Mark wouldn't play for him after the 84 Grand Slam Tour, and uh, he never played, never played for the Wallabies again. Uh, I'm concerned, Matt, uh, looking at your list here, that you're going to piss off a lot of seriously talented players because uh, the list of players you haven't picked is probably the most uh, impressive that I've seen. Where do you want to start? Oh, mate, we'll start. Let, let's, let's be sensible, unlike how the Irish rugby teams announce their sides and start with number one and move 15. <laughs> um, you know, why we start at 15 and then change back to one after eight is one of the great mysteries of Irish rugby. <laughs> and then you come to 16, like... Why not just start with one and go to 23? Isn't that the way everyone else in the world does it? So let's start with number one, the great Oz Oz Durant. Do you remember? So, so look, the best team, I I could have easily picked the Auckland front row side of of Dowd, Fitzpatrick and Ola Brown. That's the best front row I ever ever dealt with, and that was my first year in – that's when I first went into the top line coaching in Super Rugby. I was assistant coach in 96 and then head coach in 97, and that Auckland side is the best side I've ever coached against. Um, the best side, the best side I've ever seen, pretty much anywhere, um, and they were a provincial side. But I, uh, the, the the best loose head I, I ever coached against was Oz Durant, the great South African loose head. He was a giant of a human being, a farmer from the High Veld, 
huge man. And he, I first met Oz in uh, 96, and he went on and won the World Cup in 2007, which was just an extraordinary piece of longevity for him. But I think what I've, I've what I've tried to do is is these guys change the game in their position. They were just so unique that the game moved had to move around their genius or their gifts. And Durant was just this unmovable object at the scrum that made the, the, any scrum he played in absolutely a weapon. And it, the size of the man's chest was was just incomprehensible. He was, and and he also had this beautiful uh, farmer's personality. You know, he was a lovely man. He was he was an extrovert, or still is an extrovert. And but but everyone had to adapt their scrummaging because of the size of this guy and the way he went about his game. And he, he was uh, an absolute uh, revelation to the scrum. So what the Australians had to do, we had to work on a way to take the scrum down a significant amount towards the ground. So to take away their strength in the south of the scrum, especially Oz Durant, the Wallabies and the Waratahs, all of us came up with this theory that if we could get them low enough, they can't use that strength on us. Now, there were huge risks in that as far as you fall over and collapse and you give away penalties. And in those days, there weren't as many penalties as Ben Arms. But you used the scrum. The scrum was your launch weapon to get the ball out. And that's what the South Africans didn't want. They wanted a scrummage and we wanted the ball liberated because we had great back lines. And so it changed the whole nature of scrummaging because of this one guy and the, and the way the South Africans leveraged that. Yeah. Um, You've Sean Fitzpatrick beside him. Um, I think there's probably a generation who've grown up watching Sean Fitzpatrick on TV as opposed to watching him play rugby. So what was so special about him as a rugby player? Well, Sean, he was, uh, he, he was the first, like, when I say cheeky, that's not the right word. He gave lip to everyone in the whole game everywhere for every second, and he matched it up with great skills, unbelievable competitiveness, a, a phenomenal leader. And was a personality, was an extrovert. You're seeing, you see Sean on TV, you know, he's toned down from when he played. He was, and the New Zealanders had this uh, persona as really dour, you know, South Island farmers. And they were, they were, you know, they didn't smile. They were the most dour of the dour. And, and Sean wasn't. Sean was upbeat, they were electric. And that, he also led the modern New Zealand way of playing rugby, which was this extraordinary ball movement, great attack, great play from everyone, a 15-man game. New Zealand didn't play that. Up until up until that great Auckland side coached by Graham Henry, which Sean was captain of, New Zealand rugby was a very, very different beast, and that's why Australia could dominate. It was really very much an eight-to-nine-man eight, eight to nine man game or ten-man game with Grant Fox kicking, and Fitzpatrick read, uh, led that revolution again. That's changed the game, changed the way hookers play. Um, he, he was he was a forerunner of hookers like like Woody, that were, were completely involved in the game. Runners, not just uh, there to throw it for a line out or a scrum. How close was Woody, Matt? Very close, very very close. Um, I, I probably I probably would never hear the end of it if I told him he was the best hooker ever. Basically, <laughs> so I, I probably had a bit of a sway on it. Some some red wine might have been spilt over that, but but look, Keith was a great player, John Smith. Who, who do you and everyone you could argue to put in? Uh, I, I think the other part was like I didn't coach again against Keith much. It was only a few games where I coached against that great Auckland side twice a year, 
we'd go away at the beginning of the year for trials together, Canterbury, Queensland, Auckland and New South Wales. We'd go to a, uh, up into Queensland and a thing called the South Pacific Cup and we'd play each other as warm-up games for the Super Rugby. So we got to know these guys really well. We stayed in the same hotels, the same areas. You played games and, and you were much more social after the games. There was interaction with the coaches. And so I got to know them very well and it grew a great respect for them and, and, a, and a great understanding of how brilliant of players they were. Not saying that Keith wasn't. Keith took Leinster apart on a number of occasions when I was assistant coach there back in, in 2000, uh, 99, 2000. But uh, Sean just gets the nod for, for, for me. Is that um, Dad Fitzpatrick, Olo Brown, that, that Auckland team, is, is that kind of the birth of the Auckland Blues and everything that comes from them, that philosophy, that style of play? Like, in many ways, is it? I don't know enough about the, the history of New Zealand rugby, but it, it sounds like with Graham Henry's fingerprints there and those players, that it's kind of a foundational text in how we consider, say, the the team that wins the World Cup with McCaw and Carter in London as kind of like that's the high water mark where everything is absolutely perfect, the handling is perfect, they're kicking off both feet, everybody is so sublimely skilled, and that's the absolute peak of what rugby can be. Does it is the birth of that? This team is that kind of am I over am I overstretching a bit there or is that it? No, no, not at all. Uh, it's exactly right. And what happened was when we went professional in after the World Cup in '95, Auckland, which you would see in the NBC, which blue and white stripes, they were still a magnificent side. They won the Ranfurly Shield uh, many, many times. They were a phenomenal side right through that era. But they didn't play that completely that style of play. That Grant Fox as their out half, he was much more a kicking player. Still a wonderful, wonderful player. Only a little man, you know, five foot nine, probably 80, 82 kilos. Phenomenal footballer. But the the metamorphosis of New Zealand rugby being based around uh, eight guys with a kicking game was this Auckland side under Henry and these phenomenal players that they had through this, through their side, like right through their side. Michael Jones, you know, Jonah Loma we'll get to later on, uh, Carlos Spencer, Ronnie Clark. Uh, Lou Stencil, I can name the side because it's in Zambrook, Robin Brook, Michael Jones. Th- this was a side that contained, you know, probably seven or eight, maybe more all-time great players. And they revolutionised the way New Zealand played rugby. And they were just in an era of really, uh, really good uh, teams in super rugby that had won the World Cup, 87, 90, uh, uh, 91 was Australia, 95 was uh, was South Africa and 99 Australia. So the Southern Hemisphere was dominating and all those teams were in Super Rugby. The Auckland team was head and shoulders above that for a number of years and before Canterbury came through and and, and started to challenge them because of the quality that Auckland put together and revolutionised the, the, uh, the, the playing of, of rugby. Okay, fair enough. Adam Jones is the uh, final member of your front row. What was it about Adam Jones that makes him ahead of like a fairly uh, star-studded list of threes? Yeah, John Hayes, the best lifter in the lineout I've ever seen. Ewan McKenzie, phenomenal player all around. But you, you know, and I Brown, as I said, just just an incredible footballer, and also totally fit. I just think Jones was so outstanding. Um, and the way that the, the team builds around a tight air prop and that wild side from that era that came to dominate for a, for a considerable period of time around the, the 2005 mark, 2004 mark, when Mikey Ruddick won a, won a Grand Slam with them. They built their team around him, and that sort of started this, this concept of you can build a team. If you get a quality tight air prop, 
you can build an organisation around that quality tight end prop. And what Adam Jones said, he wasn't just a scrummager. Like Oz Durant was a scrummager, pretty much full stop. He did other things, but certainly Adam Jones was a footballer, but he was also a supreme technician that went through on so many levels of the game. And really, you've got to say, a pretty average Welsh team uh, for, for a period of time built a championship-winning side around his ability around the field and in the scrums, and that's uh, that's a fair statement to say you can you can build a side around that one guy. And I, I believe that I know that was uh, Mikey Ruddock's thinking at the time. Uh, you got Paul O'Connell and John Eels as your second row partnership, which is uh, let's face it, uh, world class, right? Uh, I think I think we have a fair idea of, of O'Connell. Um, he's ahead of Mark Andrews and Martin Johnson for your number four jersey. Also, a pretty star-studded list. So, what swung it for O'Connell? Uh, I, have a, I have a lovely story about Paul that I told him once. It's my joke that uh, Paul was injured at, when he was a very young player, and I was coaching Island A. We used to come in on a Wednesday, so Paul came in on the Wednesday. I think we we're up in Belfast, and someone was uh, got hurt in the big boys. And on the Thursday, he was called into the senior team and played that weekend. And I say he's the best learner I've ever coached because I taught him everything he knows in one day. <laughs> he, he was just at that day at training, and I'll, I'll never forget it. Mark McCall was my assistant coach. Mark was gone on to win so many great trophies with Saracens. And that night at dinner with Brady Igo, we're sitting there and we all just looked at each other and said, how good is Paul O'Connell? <laughs> like, just in one day, was that guy is just head and shoulders above everyone in this place. Like, how good is this guy? And you then saw what Paul went on to do with his career, his leadership, his attention to detail. Uh, you know, over multiple years, he, he, he was just an incredible second rower. Um, compared to even the greats like Martin Johnson and these other great players, uh, Paul just had these gifts of leadership but also of incredible skills. That his, his aerial ability to be lifted and catch restarts I think is the best I've ever seen. I mean, there's probably some guys out. Matfield, like how can you leave out Victor Matfield? And, you know, another great Irish second rower, Malcolm O'Kelly, except for Paul, would be regarded as our best second rower along with Willie John McBride, but because Paul was so dominant, people forget how great Malcolm O'Kelly was. Malcolm was staggering. Malcolm would be the best second row I coached, but he doesn't make that line-up over, uh, over Paul. John Eels, obviously, a, like a totemic figure in Australian history. Yeah, no, like a freak. And, and a gentleman, six foot seven, can hit a golf ball like a mile, uh, should have played for Australia cricket, could have played at, uh, top line uh, basketball, just could do everything. Uh, his nickname is Nobody. What a great nickname because nobody's perfect. And that's John. John is a gentleman off the field. You would not find a more lovely human being. He is a great ambassador and he was head and shoulders away the best second row I've, I've seen in my life. Your back, your, your back row is also sensationally well balanced. You've got Olivier Mann, Michael Jones, and Zinzan Brook. The players who don't make it are Pinar, Rocky Elson, Richard Hill, Serge Betson, David Wilson, Sean O'Brien, Immanuel Aaron Ordecky, Delalio, Teichman, and Anthony Foley. So I think by virtue of the players we've listed off who don't make it, people can get a sense of the quality there. So Mann, Jones, and Brooks. Brooks, Zinzan Brook. 
Yeah, Zinzan Brook. Zinzan Brook, Eden Park, 1996. I was assistant coach. Was we, we were at the Waratahs. We go toe to toe with them. It's like a phenomenal game. It's like 40 43, and we've played our absolute hearts out. There's about a minute and a half to go. Auckland are behind. They're ramming on our left hand touch line near the try line, like a metre out. We give away a penalty. Zinzan Brook picks the ball up, and in the most like a John Elway gridiron pass, 65 metres, the full width of Eden Park, into the hands of Jonah Lomu, who touches down on the other side of the field unopposed. And you just look there and go, that's just not fair. You know, like, that's just that's just not fair. The guy could do everything. He dropped a field goal against against uh, the Springboks to win a game. He, he, our, the back row moves that are, are sadly gone from the game now that should come back hopefully we'll come back one day because they're so entertaining with, about him with a ball in hand he's the most skillful number eight I've ever seen he, he is uh, the, the prototype of the tall athletic highly skilled number eights that we, we want in the game and he was the best by a mile inside of me had Michael Jones the best seven I've ever seen Michael was just this incredible athlete with a motor could do anything on the ball off the ball against guys like Simon Portovan, who were great players, but Jones was head above. And Olivia Magna, the great, is the best six I've ever seen, a great French player. Again, would catch the ball in the line out, would act as a second out half in attack. Brilliant defender, kicker. You know, the great um, French comeback in, this, in the semifinal in 1999 against New Zealand where they beat New Zealand. Uh, people forget that it was Mania at the core of that, creating the breaks, creating the opportunities that Fran- the French wingers capitalised on. But Mania was at the heart of the greatest upset in the history of, of uh, World Cup rugby. Uh, and I coached against Olivia a number of times for Claremont, against Claremont, and uh, also uh, off the field, walked straight in the change room, shake hands, was booted and heartbroken. Uh, just a champion on every front, as they all were. Sinzan Brook and, and Michael Jones, just uh, really wonderful, wonderful ambassadors of the game off the field as well. Uh, scrum half, Matt. It can't have been e- <clears throat> can't have been easy either. You're looking at names here that that didn't make it: Matt Dawson, Peter Stringer, Gary Armstrong, uh, Brian Redpath, Fabian Galtier, George Gregan. But you've opted for a, a late great South African as your pick. Yeah, just again changed the game. Who, who had six foot four scrum halves? Who had, it didn't exist. They didn't have the guys of that size playing scrum half just weren't in the game, and just the way he played, the physicality. Of that, and when I say physical, he was he wasn't a, a big man, but he was beautifully athletic. He was lightning quick, pass off both hands, kicking. But his his threat as a runner was what revolutionised that play. Georgie Gregan was the other one that revolutionised because of his ability to take steps before passing. That we now see if you if you look at uh, Antoine Dupont. That is what makes Dupont a great player. But you imagine Dupont at six foot four, and that's what, or six foot two, which is what uh, Juste Van Westhusen was. And again, a phenomenal kicker of the game, unbelievable competitor, and and drove South Africa to the '95 uh, Cup, well, World Cup winning side. Uh, I coached against Juste when he was with um, Northern Transvaal at Super Rugby, and again. Just a, an absolute boost of a, of a man uh, to defend because he would literally his threat meant you had to have three defenders either side of the ruck always there, so that's six players out of the defensive line just holding for juice because you could not let him run. If he ran, you lose. 
So you had this, that was your starting point. Okay, you three guys either side, lock in the ruck, make sure he doesn't get the game line, and we all go forward and make him pass. But then he passes, and we're six defenders out of the game. He, he was um, an incredible man to uh, tactically to try and nullify. And, and you, when you've got guys of that staggering talent, you can't. Uh, you, you can only try and minimise their impact on the game. The list of out-halves who don't make it. Michael Liner, Stephen Larkham, Joel Stransky, Johnny Wilkinson, Henry Honnibal, Roland O'Gara, Freddie Michelak and Andrew Mertens. So it must be someone bloody good, Matt. Who is it? Mate, how could you leave those guys out? <laughs> uh, Carlos Spencer, I guess it's also that what well, Carlos Spencer, the combination that Carlos Spencer did, he, he was this gifted athlete. Like The guy was like, like you know, he was like the cover of Men's Health magazine. He had a six-pack, he had shoulders. He was electric over 20 metres, like absolutely electric. And the only player I've seen with ball skills equal to him was Mark Eller. Mark Eller was better. That tells you how good Eller was. But Carlos Spencer used to do this play when I was coaching the Waratahs. He would catch the ball from his nine. He would pass to his 12, but he really didn't pass to the 12. You can't believe this because he would then recatch the pass that he was pretending to give to his 12. He would turn his body completely around and pop the ball from his right-hand side back inside his left-hand shoulder. So let me say that again. He catches, passes to no one, re-catches, and puts the ball back behind his back to the left-hand side, at which point Jonah Lomu would hit that ball at 110 miles an hour. It was the most indefensible play I have ever seen. And the first time I saw it, I was sitting with Al Gaffney, and we sort of were silent for a second. And then we both said, did he just pass, recatch, and throw it back over? He? And I remember our back line was defending. Manny Edmonds was at 10. Uh, and it's just indefensible. You just couldn't – because you, 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 who do you stop? Who do you go to? And then the key, the attack weapon, is Lomu <laughs> at full pace. He could just do things that I've never – Apart from Mark Eller, I've never seen anyone do And even Mark Eller, he had more pace over 100 than Mark. So he would quite often go 80, 90 metres and make breaks, kick the ball both feet, spiral kicks like, like Ronan could. Um, probably never fulfilled his potential at the top level at, at, as winning a World Cup, but was uh, was the most awesome player I've ever seen. I have to say, I, I, like, I, I remember... Uh, watching him at the World Cup and like there were between the legs passes oh, no look stuff I I feel a little bit like if he had won a World Cup the game of rugby would have benefited massively because people stuck it to him oh you're all fancy Dan you can do it when the big game isn't on the line I'm like that's not really what happened here the, he did not cost him the World Cup the rest of the team and the systems weren't in place but if he'd won the World Cup then every kid in the world would have been encouraged to try the, the nonsensical and to try and dream the dream that Carlos Spencer dreamed and I actually felt like um, a mechanical form of rugby that was a bit soul crushing that was a bit South African that was a bit England took over as the dominant well this is how you win a World Cup because you get it done you stick it up the jumper and you, whatever you do don't be a fancy down like Carlos Spencer yeah, 100% mate 100% and that was always the argument if you watch again the greatest the two greatest games of rugby I've ever seen Included involved France, the, the semi final of the 87 World Cup where they beat Australia in Australia, and the 99 semi final where they beat New Zealand at Twickenham. And I was fortunate to be at both games. But people forget if you watch the first half of that 
uh, France-New Zealand game where New Zealand absolutely dominated and Loma scored some great tries. It was Spencer that was creating all the space. Spencer that was creating all the havoc with Jonah, with Jonah Lomu and, and, and Tana Umanga. He was absolutely incredible. Spencer did not lose that game. A number of other people missing tackles and dropping balls cost them that, that, that day. And it was a great New Zealand side that should... And if they had got through, I'm pretty certain they would have beaten Australia that day uh, in, in the final. But that's they didn't, and Australia won it. But I, I do agree with you. And Spencer has not... And Lomu in New Zealand are not remembered the way they should be because of that day. John Lomu is your number 11, and he's the only uncontested player you have in your team, which suggests that this was the easiest decision you had to make. Absolutely. First, first name. I wrote 1 to 15. I said, well, who's in? I said, Lomu. I've never seen anything like him. Uh, I don't think I ever will. He is the greatest winger. Uh, I, I, you just can't describe what it was like to coach against him. Um, he was... He was a colossus. You're searching for, for adjectives and verbs to describe what this man could do. The first time I saw him in the old days, they played curtain races before test matches. And usually it was Australian schoolboys versus New Zealand schoolboys. It would start about 1 o'clock and then the main game would start at 3. And that was a very much an Australian tradition. We would always have two games on test match day. He played number eight for, for New Zealand schools this day and you just said wow who is this kid he picked the ball up the base of the scrum and would go 80 metres he did it four or five times and I was like my goodness what a number eight about two weeks later he's on the wing for Auckland you know and, and you, this guy is, is just steamrolling everyone that he comes up against and you know we saw what he did at the uh, 95 World Cup poor old Mike Cat, who was a phenomenal player uh, ha- happened to be the guy that got steamrolled by him and people remember that was very unfair on Mike because he was an f- absolutely fine rugby player and Lone Jonah did it to everyone absolutely everyone we we played them at Auckland Eden Park in 1999 I'll never forget I turned Strauss the great South African captain who had uh, emigrated to Australia and I got back to play rugby with us and Strauss he just says you know I'm going to tackle him follow me as soon as he gets the ball we're all, I'm going to be the one and Straussie was a brave guy, big dude. And sure enough, Lama gets the ball leading the charge of Straussie straight at him, hurls himself at him. And I have this vivid memory of Tian tumbling over backwards as Jonah just goes straight through. Uh, you know, the size of the man, the pace of him, his power and his ability to get involved in the game. And his linking, again, as I said before, with Carlos Spencer. He was at his most dangerous when Spencer brought him in from the blind side. So it, it, people think of him on the end of a back line. But when that guy was coming in off 10 or 12, with, with Spencer taking the ball deep to the line, and then he's got his options, he's got a Rony Clark and Lee Stensis in front, or he's got he's got Jana Loma or Joely Mandiri out the back. My God, it was a nightmare. And, and he was he was phenomenal. And, and again, Jonah, off the field, was this quietly spoken, lovely young man. Yeah. You know, just a tragedy that we lost him so early. 100%. Your centre partnership is Tim Horan and Brian O'Driscoll. I know when we, we talked to Brian about his uh, his heroes, Tim Horan is, is definitely somebody he would name-check as an inspiration in terms of uh, being a centre. Again, just to uh, indicate some of the players who didn't make it here, Damien Try, Felipe Contepomi, Gordon Darcy, Henny LaRue, Sterling Mortlock, Jason Little, Yannick Josian, and Will Greenwood. Again, uh, Horan and O'Driscoll, I think, is like one of the all-time great dream team partnerships. 
yeah, it tells you a bit about Australian rugby at the time too that you could have, uh, you know, Horan and um, uh, Jason Little who were a great partnership and Sterling Mortlock, uh, you know, three great centres with the Australian three-quarter line now. Like, wow, he's just, just not even in the top seven or eight in the world. But we, we were gifted. And Timmy, um, you know, he's got a great – he's like me, he's got Irish ancestry. His family's from Tipperary. Was was phenomenal over many years. So Tim, you know, first uh, they won the Blues Lake Cup in '89 when, when Tim and Jason were, were kids in the centres. I think they were 19 in the centres, and Tim th- and then Tim had a horrific knee injury. Came back, won a World Cup in '91, won a World Cup in '99. So yeah, you know, over a 12 year career with the Wallabies was was staggering. I coached against Tim for New South Wales many many times against Queensland, which is Munster versus Leinster, the blue versus the red, and, and the same thing. You only had to one, win one game each year, and that was against Queensland. If you didn't beat Queensland, you were in a lot of trouble. And they were a great side with Horton and Little and Earls. It was, a, it was the, you know, an unbelievably good Queensland side. And again, Tim could change a game uh, in, the, in, in a split second. He revolutionised the way that inside centres played. Tim was not was very athletic or very powerful. But um, was not a tall guy, a bit like very, very similar to Brian in in physique, probably a little bit a bit uh, bigger than Brian in in his muscularity. But Tim could accelerate so unbelievably over fifteen meters and use his footwork to get to shoulders of the defenders. And then he also had a pass. But Tim also the break that Tim had was was staggering. I think the other thing with Tim was he was beautifully complimented by by Jason as an outside. Jason was tall and rangy, a bit like Shane Horgan, um, where, where Tim was this more compact, brilliantly fast player. I actually thought we thought of playing Brian at 12 for a while when, when Brian was very young back in, in 99 because he reminded me so much of, of Timmy Horan. But, but, you know, Brian's ability to go on the outside was just so good that, you, you know, he was a natural outside centre. But it did cross my mind at, at the time. Okay, Campese, you you mentioned it at fourteen with somebody. Um, for some of our younger listeners who uh, might not be utterly familiar with Campese's range of tricks, a little bit like what you were talking about, Carlos Spencer, there was kind of a, a preternatural ability to understand where other people were without looking, or it was kind of a sixth sense about where they were. Yeah, um, he's a bit, he's close to the two best players I ever coached were Brian and David, and both of them. Uh, had a six six sense, and Campo. Firstly, he was magnificently fit and magnificently skilled for the amateur era. He only lasted two years. He was in the professional era. He won the '91 World Cup, um, but he was playing. He played for the Wallabies in in the Grand Slam in '84 when he was ninety when he was only nineteen. David could kick the ball seventy meters both feet. He is the best punter of a ball I have ever seen in my life. He and, and he practiced. He's also the best trainer. Trained his heart out. He is electric speed. He did a goose step. He was the first person to bring the goose step in. Again, changed the game. Footwork that we now see uh, regularly. That he was the first person to, to do that. He, he, he literally invented it. Brought it into the game of rugby. Scored tries. Um, to give you an example, you, you take and you measure how many times people touch the ball in the game. So your nines and tens and your twos and your eights touch the ball more than anyone else. You come to the end of a game and Campuzzi would touch the ball more times than everyone on the team except for the, the halfback. He got involved from the wing like like no one I've ever seen. He revolutionised the position. And again, until Jonah came up, 
uh, he, he was considered the greatest player in the world, was for many years the greatest player in the world, greatest attacking player. If, you, if a young player go and Google up his uh, tries, and they still they, t- they stand the test of time. He is a, a staggering, staggering athlete. And the last one is sorry, were you going to? No, I was just on that last one. Like I think Keith Wood picked Jason Robinson, maybe, but that was on the on the wing, possibly. But Matt, you've gone with Robinson mentioned there at fullback at fifteen. But you've got like the, the list of names again: Latham, Montgomery, Wilson, Poitrino, Gervin Dempsey, Rob Carney, Joubert. Uh, but you've opted for an All Black as your as your fullback. Christian Cullen. Um, when Christian Cullen came signed for Munster, I first heard and went, "Wow." That's, that's a phenomenal signing. Christian Cullen, uh, at his peak in New Zealand, I was coaching Super Rugby, so he was uh, playing for Wellington and also with Tana Umunga in that side. Uh, he, he was a freak. He was an absolute freak of nature, a very slight man, 83 kilos, yet he could bench press almost double his body weight. He, he, he was just this power athlete that was slight, Unbelievable acceleration, great kicker of the ball, but it, it, his footwork was staggering. If you kicked to him and you didn't have a kick chase line that was absolutely disciplined and organised and brilliant in their tackling, he'd go 100 metres. There was there's a great clip up. It's actually against a, a uh, does the rounds often uh, when Christian Cullen's name come up of him scoring a try against the Waratahs in the Sydney Football Stadium. Now in my defence, he goes he takes the ball in his own try line. He goes 100. I'd ask everyone to look at the score. We were leading 45 to 12 at the time. And we did win the game. We did win the game, which is quite often not remembered by people when they text me, well, you coach when he scored that try? And I won. But we did win the game. But that's what Cullen could do. In, in those days, we would tour South Africa together with a New Zealand side. So the two, two provincial sides from Australia, one from New Zealand would go to South Africa, and we'd stay in the same hotel for two weeks. So you got to know these guys really well, and you got to watch them train and got to watch them uh, uh, as they conduct themselves, Cullen uh, in a generation that had Jeff Wilson and and, uh, and Lomu was a staggering, staggering athlete. His star was only brief. That's the only thing I would say about Christian. When he he, he didn't last the the length of time of other players, but it was uh, it was an incredibly bright star. It's definitely one of the great. Uh, sporting tragedies that he didn't get to fulfil his time at Munster and show glimpses of what he was capable of because I know it, it rankers with him um, that people here don't think of him the way you guys do think of him because we didn't really get to see that in person and um, it kind of makes it all the more sad really because like that yeah. Munster team was crying out for somebody like that to be added to, to the mix uh, Irish rugby was crying out for it and you look what Dougie Howell did when, Howell did when he got there uh, you know, Christian was uh, was just a staggering athlete. You know, I, and I'm, I'm huge respect for Dougie. Like he's an unbelievable player, but but Christian at his best was 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 in my opinion, you know, a, a couple a, a step above, just slightly above Dougie. But, you know, Dougie was a legend. Christian would have been uh, phenomenal for the game in, in Ireland, and it was uh, it was really sad. I fell for him because he's also a really lovely bloke. He's a you know down to earth. Guy and he, he he wouldn't go to any team without wanting to do his best, and he certainly didn't get that opportunity, not through anyone's fault, to to show what he could do. Matt, that fifteen is a match for any team in the history of the world. It is a phenomenal uh, team that you put together. Thanks so much for doing the work for us. 
Thanks uh, for asking me. It was, uh, it was good fun. I yeah. really enjoyed it. A brilliant thought experiment. The best 15 that Matt Williams coached against there. Uh, if you've got any views on that, you can leave a comment on the YouTube stream. Um, maybe you're like Terry Kelly and you love Shane's tracky top, half expecting him to start breakdancing at any moment. You're not going to get into breakdancing for me, but uh, no, I appreciate the comments and the fashion always. You, you, you're not a breakdancer? Not a breakdancer. You don't want to see me dance in any capacity. What are you? you well, no. I can't, even, I can't even jive, and as a Monaghan man, that's like a, it's almost like a, a birthright that you should be able to jive, but right. I can't jive. And line dance with the best of them, though. Well, you've been to Garth Brooks, so you're probably the line dancer of the, of the pair of us. Uh, it's 9.40. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning in association with Movember. Brought to you by Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mo. You can sign up or donate now at Movember.com. Tomorrow, we're going to hear from Republic of Ireland superstar Denise O'Sullivan we're following the weekend's World Cup draw uh, Keith Wood's going to be on the line as well as recently crowned European Boxing Championship silver medalist Christina Desmond and Tommy Rooney will give us his predictions ahead of this Friday's GA All-Star OTB AM with Gillette in association with Movember effortless shave magnificent mode.